This program contains adult content. Is there a God? A big atheist. Really? What, am I an idiot? Come on. That yes, it would be nice if you could throw your sins and your responsibilities on someone else. But it's not true. It looks like far left lunacy. I don't believe that it's true that religion is moral or ethical. You don't need to follow anybody! It's not human intelligence! If someone doesn't value logical consistency, what logical argument are you going to give them that will demonstrate that they should? Hello and welcome to the Godless Revolution. Today is Wednesday, August 31st. This is episode 389. My name is Dan Ellis, and I'm joined by one awesome co-host this evening. Uh, that yep. will be Mr. Ryan Duffy. I am the one not shitting his pants. <laughs> sorry, Taylor. Didn't mean didn't, didn't mean to. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> and also, congratulations to you for for not. <laughs> I know. It's it's, it's, it's a nice everybody. Yeah, it's a nice life to live. <laughs> Ryan over there living his best life, not shitting his no, pants. Not shitting my pants. <laughs> nice. Uh cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, Taylor <laughs> Taylor's not joining us tonight. Uh he uh may have gotten food poisoning. He's he's not sure exactly what the case is, but he's uh not feeling well and is just evacuating. His his body is purging itself of all things. So <laughs> Uh, he'll be joining us next week. Yeah. According to him out both ends. Yeah. Which is not a good time for, no. for people's, uh, then you got to make, you know, I just realized that bidet might be coming in handy for him right now. Oh yeah. Cause if it's coming out both ends and you just have a toilet, you got to pick which end gets priority. <laughs> but if he has that bidet sitting right next to him, uh-huh. He can probably just vomit into it. <laughs> maybe maybe it's close enough that he can just kind of straddle like, one and puke into the other. Yeah. 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 No, <laughs> there's no priority taken of like, oh, what's more what's what's coming the fastest and what can I hold on to the longest? Yeah. <laughs> just thinking. It's all, about, it's all about setting your priorities straight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and which one would you prefer to clean up if you had to? Oh, the vomit, definitely. Yeah. God, that's hard though. Like for me, uh, if I smell vomit, there's a good chance that I'm going to vomit myself. If yeah. I can smell it and I hear somebody doing it, it's over. <laughs> then then there's no stopping me. I'm going to vomit for sure. I have I have a weak constitution when it comes to things like that. Yeah, I just don't want to touch my own shit. Uh yeah. <laughs> uh, I well I think I'd rather touch my own than someone else's maybe. Well, probably. I mean, you, you got a, a, a granddaughter that you're probably used to touching her shit all the time already changing uh, diapers. And no, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't. Luckily I haven't had to touch any poop. Like <laughs> it hasn't been that bad when I've had like to change the, her. getting those big back sprays where they shit and like, Oh, uh -huh. it's up. It's all the way up the back. Like it's <laughs> time to take a bath. Yeah. Apparently there have been some, some horrifying tales of she was constipated for like three days and oh. Danica had to use a suppository. And then that was not a pleasant thing for anybody. And the aftermath of that was also equally unpleasant. 
as, as soon as the dam broke. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think she, I think she said she went through three, three outfits that day. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and they were just total blowouts. Like, no, and then, you know, Lily has a bunch of adults who just absolutely adore her and are looking to spoil her at every opportunity. So she has a ton of clothes. And Danica's just like, I have so much clothing for her that it's like when it's that bad, I just throw it away and I don't. Worry about it. <laughs> well, expect, well, I mean, even especially at a child that young, they're going to outgrow those clothes to a point where it's like they can only wear them for a few months anyways, because they're constantly fucking growing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah, she's, she's just like, I, I'm not, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm not going to make anybody else deal with that. I'm just going to throw it away. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, yeah so what's new with you mr duffy we didn't record last week and we'll get into that later but it's it's been a couple weeks since i've had a chance to talk to you i know well i don't think a whole lot is new i mean my face is nice and healed up uh is it still numb in the area oh no i I can feel it now it's just got i got a weird like scarred up bump yeah on the bottom which i've caught with my fingernails like scratching my chin and made it bleed so it's not thick scar tissue yet well that's good but uh apparently uh i don't produce testosterone oh yeah yeah so i'm I'm gonna here pretty soon have to get on weekly injections of testosterone you got the low t do you well it might i got low testosterone but it might be due to my job Oh, how so? Like you're, well, you're, they've realized that the chemicals they use to treat the inside of the gear we wear causes cancer and a whole bunch of other side effects. And awesome. the foam agent that we use is PFAS, which is a forever chemical, which is also what's inside of our bunker gear was a forever chemical that never leaves your body. Bioaccumulative, yeah. Yep. So uh, the doctor that I am going to is actually one of my buddy's wives. And he's a firefighter. And a lot of the other guys from the fire department go there. She's like, this has been a trend we've been seeing from every single one of you. Like every firefighter that comes in here, that's been in there for long enough and actually had those old chemicals that you guys played with. None of you are producing testosterone. Oh, all of you are sterile. And if you're not sterile, you only have girls. Wow. And she also is like, that's also why you guys have your cholesterol levels are all out of whack goes because if your testosterone is super low your cholesterol levels will be super all over the fucking place she's like yep wow so you're exhibiting the same exact thing all the other guys in the department that come in are exhibiting wow so damn yeah so hopefully uh with some some research i know there's some different uh national fire organizations who are trying to currently sue the government and the manufacturers of these products to find out when they knew they were cancerous. What did they know? And when did they know it? Pretty much like, Hey, if you've known this for a long time and you didn't tell us that this was a cancer causing agent, which is why a lot of firefighters have, uh, throat cancers or testicular cancer. It's not Mm -hmm. because of inhaling smoke. It's because of your gear rubbing on your neck in those areas or rubbing in your groin. You're absorbing that chemical in, in those areas at a higher dose and causing cancers in your body because the, the stuff on the inside of our gear is basically the same thing as like 
Teflon that put on a pan. It's made so when you, so moisture doesn't absorb. So if you're in a fire and there's hoses going everywhere, steam, your gear is not supposed to collect that moisture. It's supposed to shed the moisture off of it and it's not supposed to soak it up. But because that chemical water transfers, water transfers yeah. heat very, very effectively. That and just the weight of water. So if you're in there and 60, 70 pounds of gear, now all that gear is soaked in water. Now you're in 120 pounds worth of gear trying to do work. And yeah, the, the, the water creates steam, which also burns you. And that's not fun. Mm-hmm. So it's made, so it's got a membrane in there that doesn't absorb water. And apparently the chemical they use in that membrane uh, is cancerous. Mm. Well, that's not good news, man. <laughs> that's, that's pretty bad. So, but hopefully... Like even on here, like I like I tell you something, I'm like I'll take a nap sometimes before we get on if Oz lets me. Mm-hmm. But I'll still be fucking like energy level fucking gone. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like, I can sleep eight hours, wake up, do something for like three hours, be like, I'm fucking exhausted. Mm-hmm. And that's probably due to the fact that I've got extremely low testosterone. I'm at like fifteen percent of what my body should be producing. Oh wow. Like if I go much lower, I'm producing almost as much testosterone as a woman. Almost as much as a woman. So I'm below 200 right now. And most females produce right around like 80 parts per whatever of testosterone. And I'm under 200 and I'm supposed to be close to a thousand. So what led to this discovery? Well, when I went in to get my face checked to get cleared by the doctor, like, do you want to run your labs? Uh Uh-huh. I was like, yeah, let's just run my labs. Let's let's see. And they're like, have you ran every? And they asked, have you ever ran your testosterone levels? And I said, no, I never had it checked. And they checked it. And like, oh, like you're really low. We got some and news for you. And your cholesterol is really wacky. Like, and they might be a symptom of each other. Oh wow! So if we can get you on testosterone injections, that might help the the wacky level of cholesterol you have. Is your and cholesterol so you say wacky? Is it like way high? My triglycerides are high. My good cholesterols are high. My bad cholesterols are low. Like I'm still within like those numbers, but like, like I'm on the verge of having too high of cholesterol, and it's all my triglycerides. Hmm. There's all kinds of fuckiness going on, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, that's good. I mean, if I wouldn't have known of it. Now I'd be like, well, if I get these injections uh, and I start having more energy and just feeling like, oh, I don't feel fucking exhausted after doing shit for a half hour. Yeah. That'll that'll be nice. Yes. Yeah, that would be good. Uh, yeah, I'm, so- I'm sorry to hear that it's been an issue. That really sucks. I thought I was just getting old. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, I was going to say that could also be part of it because I know, you know, just based on personal experience that getting old really kind of fucking sucks yeah well i guess for like when you're at your like your peak of masculine like you're in your late 20s you're all fucking jacked up on testosterone and from your body i guess you're supposed to be at like 1400 oh wow but like for my age group i'm Mm -hmm. supposed to be around a thousand so you're you're producing a fifth of that yeah wow 20 percent of that man I I haven't had mine checked for quite a while. Uh, maybe I should do that because 
I too feel tired, and I figured it was just because I'm old. Uh, probably, it probably is just because I'm old. Everything well, know, is just breaking down, man. I know your testosterone levels do affect your energy levels. Mm-hmm. And mine have been getting depleted quicker. Yeah, I've noticed I need more more sleep overnight all the time now. Like I used to. Oh, I mean, way back in the day before I got the CPAP, I was getting terrible Whoa. amounts of sleep and then i was just falling asleep yeah. everywhere all the time because 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 you were suffocating to death that night yeah and then <laughs> you were you weren't breathing yeah i got the cpap and that was like oh it's life-changing i've got all kinds of energy and now i've just <laughs> this like steady decline where i'm just tired all the time even now and but i'm getting like six and a half seven hours sleep apparently i need more than that these days uh, to recover i think probably that's that's how it works the older we get but on on the other note i have good health care which will be covering this which oh, good. everyone should have the availability to good health care for free nice well that's good yeah lucky um anything else new not that i know of i've been i've been cleaning my garage today to get ready to do a whole bunch of projects on my workbench and i completely filled my garbage can already and it was completely oh. empty when I got home. <laughs> wow. Just full I'm a, of debris. Sawdust. I'm just a dirty boy. I'm just a dirty, dirty boy. It's man glitter, right? Isn't yes. Oh, right yeah, I got the, I'm wearing the shirt right now. Oh, you're wearing it right now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, man glitter. Okay. <laughs> I, think, I think the person at the a gas station the other day when I was wearing the shirt all dirty was hit, trying to hit on me. She's oh, like, yeah? Ooh. She's like, oh, man glitter. That's funny. She's like, I like men that work. I was like. <laughs> yeah good for oh, you hopefully your boyfriend is a hard-working man good for you uh. <laughs> awesome um there's not a lot new with me um work is i know i complain about work a lot on the show because it's a lot of work but with the recent passage of legislation that will be increasing the IRS's budget uh, for the next decade, uh, we'll be able we'll be able to hire some peoples <laughs> to come in and help us with a bunch of shit. So, uh, like we're we're coming up to the end of the fiscal year, we're coming up to the end of our training budget, and then, then creating new, season. new fiscal year budget. Uh, rearranging. I want. I was going to say rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, but we're not quite <laughs> yet. Uh, but like rearranging positions for a ton of people. We, for people who don't know, like I work at the IRS. Anything I say on the show, like I'm not. I'm not speaking on behalf of the IRS, my employer, and other. These are my personal opinions about some shit that is going on. So there's there's that. I need to get that disclaimer out of the way. But uh, it's just the IRS has been stripped of funding for so fucking long that, uh, we've struggled to keep people there. We have one of the oldest workforces in all of government agencies. Uh, more than half of the people currently employed at the IRS are eligible to retire within the next five years. Oh, and that's not good. No. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's, I think our current staffing level is like 81,000 or it's 81 or 85,000, somewhere right in there. And 
of that number, there's like 50,000 that are eligible for retirement within the next five years. And there are already a ton of people in that number. So that's, you know, more than 50% within the next five years. But within that next five years, there's a whole bunch of people who are eligible for retirement right fucking now. And so we've been, you know, banging pots together and making all kinds of noise for a very long time that we needed people because there's just been this steady attrition and no ability to hire anybody, but we've been losing people to other agencies, to death, to retirement, to uh, outside employment that is, you know, in the, in the private sector, no longer working in the public sector. Um, people who just decide they don't want to do what they're doing anymore anyway. And our, our staff just keeps shrinking, but our workload keeps increasing and it's been really, really bad. But now that we're getting this new funding, of course, that's kicking off a bunch of work for people who are already in positions, but we're viewing it as a good thing because, you know, eventually we're now going to be able to bring people on and get them trained and, and increase our staffing levels. <clears throat> I want to say too, that there's been a lot of bullshit going around. I've been, uh, more than a little disappointed in the number of people that I've seen sharing uncritically some bullshit talking points coming from the right about like, the IRS. Yeah, the, I the IRS doesn't fucking work good anyway. So why the fuck should we give them more money? <laughs> like, what the fuck and, good are they? And we're just going to be giving them, you know, $80 billion and then they're going to go out and they're going to hire a bunch of people and they're going to give them all guns and then they're going to come into your house yeah. and they're going to oh, steal your yeah. wallet and take all of your food out of your cupboards and throw it on the floor and stomp on it. No, that's oh. <laughs> like none of that is really going on. Uh, well, I saw, I, I saw one where the guy legit was saying the IRS is going to be the agency that comes for your guns and that's why they're hiring more people for the IRS so they can have the manpower to go into your home and take your firearms when Biden restricts them. I'm constantly surprised at just the amount of stupidity from people. Like if you, if you stop to think about something for more than just a couple seconds, you'd save yourself a lot of embarrassment before you post yeah. some of this bullshit. Uh, there's, there's, we have a mutual friend who I saw post some shit about the, the IRS budget and staffing level uh, numbers that would be coming out that they posted from, I think it was something from the national review, uh, which is bullshit, which is, which is uh, it's, it's not as bullshit as like OAN, but it's still like, it's still super right wing biased uh, libertarian leaning. Like it's not a great source for, simple factual information there's it's hugely biased hugely slanted and often just a repeat of bullshit republican talking points um lowry is a hack i don't know why anybody has him on anything <laughs> other than that he's the editor for national review because he's just he's a stupid turd he's he's a he's a complete partisan political hack who We'll never ever acknowledge anything good that anything anybody is doing on the left is is doing. So he's just he's he's a giant turd, and I am constantly disappointed when I see him on TV on the Sunday news programs that I watch because he's apparently viewed as some oracle on the right that 
we should listen to, but he's not. He's terrible. He's just awful. <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> oh, we'll, we will be getting some funding. That will be good. Uh, but it's just, it's, it's made my uh, workload even more than it was. But again, hopefully that's a short-term thing and it will be good. Uh, but I have noticed too that morale is is low, but it's starting to ebb and creep up a little bit. Uh, knowing uh, on, that we on the up. hopes of less workload once these people get taken on. Yeah, yeah, and and actually being able to see that oh yes, we have in the pipeline a bunch of people who are going to be flowing into our organization here shortly. Here's the status of them. We've been having a ton of meetings around that and bringing them on board, you know, going through our onboarding process, updating all of our documentation, all of that kind of stuff. So it's, I, it's no longer just a, Hey, hopefully we're going to be able to hire some people. It's, <laughs> oh, these people are in the pipeline. They'll be joining us, you know, by the end of next month. So that's had, all stuff. I'm on my drive home from work this morning. I was listening to NPR and they were actually talking about the IRS and uh, getting more people in there. And the one thing they were talking about was the fact that there's a lot of right wing uh, non-profit, I'm holding up quote fingers, groups <laughs> that in the recent years have been more emboldened to violate their 50C3 status as a non-profit group yeah. because they know the IRS is so underfunded, they don't really have the time to do the research into all those groups and actually do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So getting more people into the IRS would hopefully be able to have more agents that are able to actually go and do more investigations and proper investigations to make sure people aren't, you know, violating their uh, nonprofit statuses as basically fucking Republican donors. And the one they were talking about was one agency that Trump just gave them a million fucking dollars. And all they do is support Trump supported politicians. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. All kinds of shit like that go on all the time that is technically illegal, but there's nobody around to enforce it. So yeah. people just get away with shit all the time. Uh, enough shop talk though. I, so we didn't record last week because I was unavailable. Uh, I, I was in jury duty and yeah. we were going to this week talk about pie. Uh, Taylor has, has written a bunch of stuff about Pi. Uh, I will have to refresh my memory about what that is. Proto-Indo-Europeans. Like, uh, yes. Yeah, I'm, I, I got it up right now. I got to okay. keep reminding myself on what it is, too. Uh, but it's basically the, the, the next step in our evolution of looking at the, well, basically the evolution of how religions have formed. Mm -hmm. which yeah. we will be going more in depth about that next week once Taylor's here uh, because he yeah. wrote up uh, a great script for it. And yeah. Yeah. We were going to do that this week, but we will be, we will be returning to that next week when hopefully Taylor is available again. But because I was out last week and do have all kinds of fun stuff to talk about jury duty and the, and the case that I uh, <laughs> was a juror for, it was a murder, uh, which actually was, was, was kind of crazy that you got on a murder case. I figure if I end up getting jury duty, it's going to be someone who bounced a fucking check. <laughs> Maybe, uh, but <laughs> we will talk more about that when we get back from this little break. 
Hello, my name is Michelle Short, co-chapter head for the Satanic Temple in Arizona, and you are listening to The Godless Revolution. Please find us on the interwebs at thesatanictemplearizona.com. You know, I've always been so suspicious of religion, but I must say, I think there's something rather chic about having a real priest at a wedding. <laughs> are you a real priest? Yeah. Do you, do you see your brother? Oh, I don't really speak to my brother. Oh, God, how desperately sad. Why is that? Oh, um, well... Maybe you, you don't have No, to. no, it's okay. Does he not approve of what you do, of your choices? No, no, it's not that, it's not that. Is he, is he not in the church? No, he's not in the church. Oh, it must be so hard. Well, it's mainly hard. Is it because he's mummy's favourite? Because he's a paedophile. Oh. I'm aware of the irony of that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to everybody who has rated the show on iTunes and Stitcher and are following us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. And to all our Patreon patrons, you make the show possible. All right. Welcome back, everybody. I'm glad that you stayed with us because now you're going to learn some shit about jury duty and how trials <laughs> actually work here in the United States. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. I, I've been complaining on social media. Well, not really complaining, just pointing out for the last, I don't know, around a year or so that I have never been contacted for jury duty. Which is why you got contacted. Like, like never. Like, it would just, it seemed so weird to me that I would occasionally see people complaining about it or somebody saying they've been contacted for, like, their fifth or sixth time. Oh, and, yeah. And it's like, I've never even been contacted about it. Like, I was thinking maybe... I was, my name had been missed somehow. I'd been left off of some, some list somewhere. I get contacted about once a year. Really? For jury duty? Ever since, like, I swear, I got a Utah driver's license. I got uh -huh. out of the military and had to get rid of my Wisconsin driver's license because I was staying here in Utah. Like, within months, I had got a jury selection notice. I was like, what? That's wild because. I've lived in Utah almost my entire adult life, and I've never received a jury notice of anything. Yeah. And then I've, I started complaining about it, and now I did. I probably <laughs> had at least at least six jury notices I've had. Yeah, never been called in. I even got a jury notice during COVID, but I got a I, jury notice that says we're not doing jury trials. <laughs> <laughs> so. For people in the audience, if you have no interest at all in how the jury selection works, how juries work, how trials work, how the murder case that I was a, a juror for went, then you can just skip the rest of this episode because that's what we're going to be talking about for the rest of this episode. And I want to tell you, too, that it will probably extend past our regular hour uh, limit for the show because there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, I, I want to go into as much detail about not only how the trial worked and how how jury selection worked and everything, but also like what the case was about and why it was decided the way it was, and then maybe get into some other areas. I think we'll probably have to withhold my my speech and disdain for the death penalty because. It, it will be mentioned, but I'm sure we won't go into much detail about it. I think we've already talked about our disdain for capital punishment on this show several yeah. times. So if they're a longtime listener, they know we do not really agree with capital punishments. Yeah, it's it's a barbaric practice that we should all be ashamed is still in use here in the United States. It's it's 
terrible. It's awful. I have yet to have anybody explain to me why it's a good idea other than that it satisfies their bloodlust. Yeah. And that's, that's a terrible thing because then you're just having the state murder somebody and nobody should really want that. Um, so can I, can I start off with my, my problem I have with jury selection? Yes. Or jury notices. So I've been contacted several times and on your jury notice, there's a selection you can fill out on a reason why you think you shouldn't have to do jury duty or why you don't think you'll be able able to do jury duty. Mm -hmm. And I work an unorthodox work schedule Mm -hmm. where I told them like the last, like I had twice while I was at Dugway got contacted and I was like, I will be at work Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. And I am required to call you Sunday night to find out if I need to go to jury duty Monday morning. Mm-hmm. which would then require me to drive in for two hours at like four in the morning to see if I get selected for jury duty and then drive back to work. Like mm-hmm. you are not even compensating me for my drive. Like I don't work where I live mm-hmm. and uh, you don't take into account people who work unorthodox work schedules. Mm-hmm. Cause I would still have to go to work after jury duty. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you don't take in that into account. Like literally if I get called in for jerk, like right now, like if it was for like three days, like it cost me $50 to drive to work mm-hmm. and you're going to pay me $12 a day. <laughs> and my employer's not going to make up the difference. My employer's not going to make up the difference. So you see how much more you're making me pay in fuel costs because I'm going to have to drive back and forth because this is only for eight hours. That's the time yeah. I got off for jury duty. My employer doesn't a, pay my fuel costs as they are now. So yeah. they're not, but I work a 72 hour shift. Mm-hmm. So jury duty on a time where I'm supposed to be at work doesn't work for people with unorthodox work schedules or people who don't even work in the area. Like I'm mm-hmm. out of the area when I work and I try to say, well, that doesn't qualify. Like what about the people who work like night shifts, who people who work late shifts and they get called in for jury duty and they're still required to go to work that night because the jury trial stuff isn't happening during their work hours. So they're not getting let off of work because it's not when they're working. It's the time that they would be sleeping. Yeah. So I'm like the whole jury selection stuff. It doesn't really help people who have unorthodox work schedules. It kind of fucks with you. Yeah. That was my gripe. Yeah, well, in the way jury selection works currently, I don't know how it has worked in the past uh, or if COVID... Well, I know for a fact COVID has modified the way things work. Oh, it, it, it fucked it up. Yeah, uh, so jury selection, the way it currently works, here in Utah at least, is that there was a pool of... Um, it had to have been between 80 and 100 people. Oh, wow. Who were all sent notification via email from the state that said, Hey, you've been selected, uh, into the pool of potential jurors. Uh, here's a questionnaire that you need to fill out that asks a bunch of things like how, you know, have you ever been convicted of felonies? Are you uh, law enforcement or, you know, do you currently work in law enforcement or have you worked in law enforcement? Are you even in the country anymore? Are you in the state? Like all of those basic level kind of disqualifying, dis- potentially disqualifying questions that would make it difficult for you to serve on a jury. 
and then from there you are put into a pool and they send you a thing that says, okay, well you've, you're now kind of basically pre-qualified and anytime within the next, and I can't remember if it was 30 or 60 days, we may contact you, uh, and bring you in as a potential juror on any given case. And that after that time period, it will expire and we'll, uh, we'll acquire a new pool of potential jurors. Yeah. I know the one when I was, had to do it the last time, it gave me a number. I had to call every night and I had a juror number. Yeah. They say, Hey, if your number's between this and this, you must report in the morning to the courthouse for jury selection. If your number yeah, isn't between that, you're, you're free call yeah, again the tomorrow it, night. Yeah. The way it works now is that they don't, they don't do that. At least for a third district court in Utah. Uh, state third district court in Utah. It doesn't work that way anymore. They now for uh, jury selection, they do it via uh, WebEx. Mm -hmm. And so I just needed to get on either my phone or computer. And it's, it's this pool of, I think there were 80 people in this initial jury selection process. And so you need to, you know, you show up for that and then you, they give you a more specific questionnaire and it asks you things like, you know, have you been convicted of a felony? Have you ever been sued for anything? Have you gone to court for anything? Have you been, you know, a bunch of different questions like that. And so you fill all of that out. Then they call you in and bring you into this pool and you're supposed to be able to have a camera and audio available. And then from there, they put you into breakout rooms. And in these breakout rooms, it's generally a group of uh, 10 to 20 people. And then they will single you out in that group. You know, you're, you're sworn in that whatever, whatever questions you're going to be asked, that you'll be answering them truly right. and faithfully. No perjuring yourself. Yeah. Thankfully, there is no swearing on the Bible or anything. It's, it's just, you know, on penalty of perjury. Um, and they ask you a bunch of different questions. Um, a couple of the questions that they asked me, I had to answer affirmatively and give explanations for that are no big deal, but they're completely beside the point and a little bit personal that I'm not going to even talk about them. I will just go through the rest of the selection process. So um, <laughs> they, you know, after they whittled it down a little bit um, from the big pool down to, okay, this is our, Lar still large pool of potential jurors from here we're going to be selecting our jury like here's our semi-finalists yeah so then they they put you in these little breakout rooms and they have you all just wait while they speak to the other breakout rooms and then they'll select people individually for uh, individual additional questioning i was one of those people that they selected for individual additional questioning um, and based on the questions that they asked me there and what I had said on my other questionnaire, I thought for sure that I was not going to be selected. You know, it was because, and, and the reasons I thought that I would not be selected were that I am a federal employee, um, that I have had some dealings with the court in the past and, uh, what was, oh, and that I'm an atheist. Did that actually um, come up? Did they actually bring up religion in it? The questioning there, there was some question about it was, it didn't directly ask you what your religious beliefs were, 
but it was, and it may have even just been, is there any other thing that we should know about? And I may have just put that I'm an atheist. So if that's going to be an issue for anybody, then let's just get that out of the way. <laughs> um, but so, so from there, they put, they put you in these little groups. They ask you individualized questions. Uh, one of the, one of the funniest things that I saw throughout this process was uh, they asked one, you know, a couple of the questions were, okay, so, you know, we've whittled this down a little bit. So now in this pool of people, we're going to ask you some additional questions. And by a raise of hands, we would like you to answer these questions. So first, have any of you heard the names of the people who would be involved in this, in this trial? And that's, mm -hmm. they give you the state prosecutor's names. They give you the defense mm -hmm. attorney's names, uh, the uh, law firm that they may be working with, the plaintiff's names, defendant's names, the judge's name. Um, and you know, have, so have you, do you have any association with these people or have you heard of them before? And then the follow-up to that was, uh, uh, had, do you, do you now, or have you ever in your personal life owned or operated a firearm? Uh, if so, raise your hand. And of course, being in Utah, it was like, like every single yeah, hand went up. Raised, everybody raised their hand. <laughs> <laughs> so the judge was like, okay, well, so rather than record who is raising their hands, I'm going to record who is not raising their hands. <laughs> it will be much shorter. And I think out of our pool of late, of 80, there were like three or four who, oh, shit. who either don't have or have never used a firearm before. Um, I, I just, so just got to mention this, though. When they ask the question, if you if you have ever heard of the judge before, you should vote yes because you fucking vote for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I just had to get that out. Yeah, yeah. In Utah, you have to vote to to continue a judge on the seat. Anyway, yes. Uh, so they whittle everybody down, and then they ask those individual questions, and then the judge gets back on after meeting with the other individual breakout rooms. And says, okay, well, you know, now we're, we're going to dismiss a bunch of people. If I, if I read your name, please remain on the call. If I do not read your name, you are free to be, you know, you're, you're dismissed. You can, you can feel free to leave. So he's reading along and he gets down. I think he reads like four or five different names. And then he's like, Dan Ellis. And I was like, shit, well, that's <laughs> really that's my, yeah, that's like my name. Is there another Dan Ellis here? Well, and the weird thing about this too is they know they sent me a notification on Friday that I at fr they sent me the notification Friday at two fifteen p.m. that I needed to appear online Monday morning at seven a.m. Oh wow! So that doesn't give you much time to let coordinate stuff with work or right. yeah. anything. So, so like, and because most of my coworkers work back east, like they're all on Eastern time. So by the time I receive this notification. Most of them have gone for the fucking day. Yeah. So, so then I just need to send an email to them saying, Hey, I'm going to be gone Monday for, I don't know. Jury how duty. They haven't given us a specified time frame other than that. I need to report at 7am. So I'll send you updates as I learn more. So uh, yeah, I, they notify me. I have like no notice at all. Show up Monday. We, we do the damn thing. He calls out my name and says, Okay. You know, the, all of the people that I've now read your names, you have been selected to serve on this jury. You will need to report to the Matheson courthouse tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. And we're going to get going on this. These here are some uh, 
additional, here's some additional bits of information you will need. Be sure that you check your email for follow-up information. Uh, does anybody have any questions at this time? And of course there were a few questions about scheduling and, uh, uh if there was a dress code that people needed yeah. to follow <laughs> And there is, and there isn't like it's, you like need don't to dress like shit. Yeah. Like you, you're not going to be kicked out of court. If you are wearing something that is not as dressy as people may want you to wear, but they're not going to deny you being there yeah. for the same reason. Like, like you Basically, can wear blue jeans, but no holes. Yeah. And you can't, you can't wear a t-shirt that is like kill them all or, you know, <laughs> kill them all, let God sort them out or fuck yeah. everybody who's, or, who's defendant for anything. Let's go, Brandon. Uh, I'm I'm pro death penalty. Like all of those oh, kinds yeah. of things would be you'd you'd be asked to leave, but otherwise you're okay. So how long did this actual process take? Uh, so this so the initial jury process, uh, initial jury selection process took like five fucking hours, like wow. five hours that day of just sitting well, on the phone, and and a lot of it was just dead air. You're just waiting for somebody to ask you a question for the judge to come in and give you instructions, all of that kind of stuff. To be honest with that many people. Well, I guess the initial questionnaire kind of gets a lot of people out. Like, yeah, nope, you're out, you're out, you're out. Then you kind of get that smaller pool, but like they got to interview all of you. Even if that's 80 people, then it's what, like the, the prosecutor and the defense attorney mm -hmm. basically doing the interviewing or is the judge also doing interviewing too? It was the judge asking all of the questions, but okay. he was, and and some of them were questions from him and some of them were questions from the state. Some of them were from the defense. So he basically okay. would collect questions from them to ask the jury so that you didn't even really know who they were coming from. Well, like that sounds like that would take even longer. Well, yeah, it, it did. I mean, that was a, that was a large portion of all of the dead air in between, but I was very impressed with the amount of care that they put into making sure that the jury pool is not tainted or biased or that they don't and that the judge, the prosecutors and the defense attorney all do their level best to not provide any prejudicial views that they're not giving you any information that could potentially uh, be Swear prejudicial you. to anybody. Which right? is, yeah, they try to do it in a very non-biased way. Which is good because our constitution says that you get to have a jury by your peers and it should be fair and just yeah. like. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was really impressed with, with how all of that is handled. Um, so they, they go through, they select the jury and I, you know, I have my name read out and then it's like, okay, well now it's like two o'clock in the afternoon again. And I need to let everybody at work know that, okay, well now it's not just that I'm a potential juror. I've been selected for jury duty and I'm not quite sure how long it's going to last. They're saying maybe through Thursday. So I do that and then show up for court the next day. And that's a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> when, you, when you go to the Scott Matheson courthouse in downtown Salt Lake city off of fourth South, you turn into the underground parking structure and there are, there are, you can go left or, or go right. If you go right, you're going into the employee section, but they've got a little guard shack set out there where they have a court person, a, a, and a law enforcement officer standing out there to direct you to the appropriate location. And as I learned on my first day to also inspect your vehicle, to make sure you're not 
bringing in a bomb or a person who shouldn't be in there. Um, they had me roll down my rear window so that they could look in the vehicle and, you know, they can look under the car or whatever, ask you what you're doing there. Go in, I park, I report to the place that we needed to go. Um, and also as part of the questioning from the judge, he said, okay, so the case that you're going to be hearing about, the defendant's name is Patrick Coeneal Brown. The, uh, the other party involved in the case uh, is Darnell Brown. Um, I need to know if you've heard of either of those names or know either of those people, or if you have potentially seen anything in the news about this case. So you may have seen potentially headlines stating, um, you know, in the media that a man shoots another man after, uh, after he made fun of his vehicle or, uh, road rage incident ends in death of another person or like, and there were, there was a list of like news articles that he read off. You know, if you've, if you're familiar with this, if you've heard of this case, if you read these articles, please let me know now. And I was shocked that I hadn't heard anything about it because this happened in Murray. Oh shit. Like my hometown where I live, like this was for state court, but this happened in my, in my suburb of Salt Lake city. Um, And you probably like me, if there's a news, if a channel is on in the background of TV, it's not fucking my little pony. It's the fucking news. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, so I was surprised that I hadn't heard anything about this case first, uh, because I'm in particular, a real news junkie. So I was really surprised that I hadn't heard anything about this. This happened April 21st of 2021. Uh, for those who are interested, I will, I will post some links to news stories from the time, uh, in the show notes for this episode. Uh, but it was that uh, Patrick Coeneal Brown uh, shot and killed Darnell Brown. Uh, Patrick shot at or toward Darnell Brown four different times, striking him three times in the head and neck. Uh, and we'll get into some of that a bit later. But the the video, there there are videos of the shooting and then videos from... Uh, officers on scene uh, performing uh, CPR that were pretty, that were very graphic and more than a little upsetting. Um, So I show up my first day to court and it's, I'm, I'm my fat, dumb, happy self, (laughs) just, just kind of milling about wondering what, what is going to go, what is going to happen. Um, There's a bailiff for, the judge in this case, judge Mao, who I think did an excellent job as, I mean, this is my only experience working on a jury, but I think he did a very good job. Uh, so the bailiff for judge Mao comes down, collects us. They lead us, uh, through different areas in the courthouse building. Um, take us up to the fourth floor and direct us into the jury deliberation room. And the way the jury deliberation room works is there's one exterior door that opens and leads into kind of an anteroom where there's a sink and a microwave and a door to a bathroom. And then there's another door that leads into like a conference room and there's a table and a whiteboard and a window you can look outside. There's also a microwave and a mini refrigerator in there uh, in case you bring your own food or whatever. They provided us like water and snacks throughout the day 
They didn't give us meals or anything. No pizza? No, we would have breaks, but we would have to go out and get our own lunch, do whatever. Uh, so Monday's jury selection, Tuesday we show up for the actual trial. And they have us wait in there forever. Uh, they give us all our, you know, after going through the metal detectors and everything to get into the courthouse, they take us back into the jury deliberation room and we're given a notepad, a pen, our juror number badge. So it's just a plastic so like placard with our juror like, number on it on a lanyard. It's like you're at a spelling bee. Yeah, basically. <laughs> our name on it, though, it just has our juror number yeah. and we're in Judge Mao's courtroom. And so you sit in there. Uh, they give you some initial instructions. Basically, just, you know, you can talk to each other, but don't talk about the case. And the judge said, I understand that it may be a little difficult. One of your first instincts is to talk to a bunch of strangers about the one thing you all certainly have in common, which is that you're working on this case together, but do not talk about it. You can talk about whatever else. Just don't talk about this case with each other. Uh, don't talk to your spouses. Don't talk to your friends, nothing. So I contacted you guys Monday after finding out that I was selected for jury duty and said, Hey, I'm not going to be able to record this week. I'm, I'm going dark. Out. Yeah. Like I, I logged out of all of my social media stuff. I told Tracy that I'd been selected but I didn't tell her anything about the case. Um, I think Ryan, you even mentioned, Oh, is it a murder case? And I was yeah. just like, I'm going to sign out of all, like I didn't even answer the question. <laughs> like, oh, I'm signing out of my social media. <laughs> and I just said it like joking, like, Oh, it's a good murder case. Like as a joke, like I figure you're on a jury case. It's someone that like, ah, oh, you, you, you got 50 parking tickets. Okay. Yep. Let's go through this. <laughs> like who actually gets to jury duty and actually gets a fucking murder case? So, so I think you asked, like, is it a murder case? And I just said something like, uh, we can't talk about the case and not be signing <laughs> out of social media. So I was like, I didn't, I didn't participate in social media for the whole time that I was doing it because I didn't want to, I didn't want it to at all have any chance of spoiling the case either way of, of, you know, hung jury. Talking because i fucked up somehow like i was just like i'm gonna be super cautious i don't want any problems here uh so yeah sign out of social media and they take us up to the thing and we're all just kind of you know talking about hey well you know how is everybody i've you know who's ever done this before who hasn't just idle chit chat and then the bailiff comes in and says okay you know i'm, I'm gonna take you into the courtroom now so they lead you from the deliberation room down the hallway to another door and they like they don't tell you exactly what's going on or what's going to happen right you're just kind of you're in just kind of like in the woods following some dude around a building it's like so basic he, training yeah so you know he he waves his badge in front of a uh door digital thing to let him into whatever room he's going into we don't even know where we're being led um but, you know, he so he opens the door, pokes his head in and instantly pulls his head back out. He's like, oh, they're not ready yet. So we wait and wait and wait. Pokes his head in about five minutes later. Oh, they're still not ready. We wait some more. Opens the door again, pokes his head in. Okay, yeah, judge. And so then he throws the door wide open and he says, please remain seated for the jury. 
And I was like, oh, we must be going into the actual courtroom now. Like that was never explained to us, but yeah, <laughs> we were. Um, and as we're walking into the courtroom, the judge says, you know, welcome members of the jury. Uh, you can see that we've altered our seating arrangements here because of COVID to give you all some room between each other. Uh, where we have uh, packets of documentation, that is where we would like individual juror members to be seated. Uh, you're, you are assigned numbers one through 10. Please file in one through 10 and occupy those seats as you get to them. Um, so they had a staggered, ordinarily there are two rows of seats and they've got chairs. Like, a, like for, on TV where they got the, yeah, the jury yeah, box. Where they've got the jury box and that's where everybody sits. For this, they had a staggered. So there were the two rows of, of seating uh, ordinarily, but then they also brought in some like church pews that they sat in front of the jury box and then a couple chairs at either end. And so they had us all scattered and spread out. Uh, so we take our seats and the judge says, okay, I think we're ready to begin. Uh, state, would you like to open the case? And well, no, actually he says, um, we're going to go through the instructions that are, that are on your chair. So then he reads through all of the instructions that he's given us. And initially there were 12 different instructions. I can't remember what all of them were. One of the things that I'm disappointed about in this whole process is that you're given these instructions up front. You're given a notepad to take all the notes you want. And then at the end, you're given this super thick packet of instructions. Uh, Is that like the, like the charging, like, like yeah, you have to you have to meet all this criteria to charge yeah. with this certain charge. Yeah, yeah, and 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 all of that is, you know, a whole separate thing at the end. And then you don't get to keep any of that. They take all. They take your handwritten notes. They take your instructions. Oh, they take uh, everything. Well, I so, mean, that makes. I mean, is that for like while you're deciding, or when you go home? Like when you go home, you don't get to take any of it with you. Which makes sense because they probably don't want like. You, know, you bring it home, you set it on the coffee table or whatever, and wife or kid starts reading through it, and that, that kind of yeah, I, I don't know. I like, I'm not sure why ultimately, like, at the conclusion of the case, I thought it would be great to have that information as you know, I could talk to other people about hey, this is what to expect, and here's how all of these different charges go, and how charging documents I mean, look, and, and the instructions to the jury like this is how this all plays out it would have been much more helpful to to have this kind of discussion yeah but i mean trump had that same idea about top secret information and we're realizing you don't just get to take it home we're like that's yeah. that's kind of not how this works well there weren't really any state secrets divulged during the case True. So. True. <laughs> but yeah it was just interesting that you don't get to maintain or keep any of that information I, I wonder if that information gets logged with the trial, like all the notes you took and like, if they, like if uh, he has a retrial, they, they go through all the information to see, Oh, they weren't paying attention or whatever, or just to have oh, that no, information he, in case. Yeah. The, the bailiff, when he collected all of the information said they just recycle it, they, they shred oh, okay. it. And, okay. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know if it got held on to for future, like if there's a, another no. reopen the trial or anything or no they because they produce everything digitally and then print off copies for you so they've got all of the digital copies of the instructions and yeah. they don't care what you wrote down as your notes like that's not okay. going to be really helpful or useful for anybody so but yeah i was i was surprised i didn't even get to keep my personal handwritten notes and i yeah. took a copious amount of notes like oh, I know. i'm sure i took more notes than anybody else on the jury uh, 
I like my notepad was full and there was no spacing in between. I had forgotten some of my, you know, college tips of be sure you leave spacing in between. And so I ended up writing like in the margins and really tiny in between lines. And so anyway, like I, I took a lot of, a lot of notes. Uh, but so he goes through all of the instructions for the jury. And then at the conclusion of that asks if anybody has any questions, if there are any problems and then says, okay, well, I think we're ready to proceed. And the state, would you like to state your opening case? And so the state prosecutor, there were two state prosecutors. Um, the first guy gets up and presents opening arguments. He does his opening. He says that, you know, on April 21st of 2021 at, you know, a little afternoon, uh, it's, it's a weekday. So people are out doing their normal things, you know, during lunch on a, on a work day. And we have video evidence. He's like, there's nothing in dispute here, really. There's no dispute about who killed Darnell Brown. You'll see on video evidence, um, Patrick Coneal Brown shoot Darnell Brown in the middle of the road in broad daylight at lunchtime on a weekday. There's no, that's not in dispute here. You're going to hear things from the defense about how Patrick was afraid for his life and some wild fantasies about a third party who is supposedly this criminal kingpin who's pulling the strings behind the scenes that led to all of this. And you can just disregard all of that as nonsense. Don't pay any attention to that. It's wild fantasies concocted purely as a defense mechanism that is complete and utter horseshit. And I was also surprised that like everybody in the courtroom, just, they say swear words. Oh, <laughs> like, so he actually said horseshit. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like he said <laughs> horseshit. the word fuck was thrown around pretty casually. Oh. Like it, yeah, it was, it was, it was nice to not have to use infantilizing language just it's because people, yeah, just because some people may be offended. It's like, no, this is, we're presenting facts. These are the facts of the case. This guy said, fuck. So you're going to hear the word fuck. Um, <laughs> so that, that was just kind of interesting. Uh, so state gets up, presents their process, their, their opening arguments that, you know, Patrick Brown shot Darnell and we're going to present a bunch of witnesses who were there on scene, who saw it happen. We have video evidence. You'll see recorded testimony from Patrick Brown saying that he did shoot him. Like there's no question about who shot and killed Darnell Brown. It's just um, what's going to happen next. Yeah. You, you are here to determine the, the penalty for what happened that day and whether you will provide justice for Darnell Brown as a victim and the family that was left behind in the wake of his death. So I, I got to ask this, were they brothers? Yeah. No, no relation whatsoever. Okay. I, I, I just like when you, when you talking about like they both had the same name Brown. Yeah. Which was making Brown, me think, like, is, yeah, Brown is a very prolific, uh, like it's, it's, it's like Brown and Smith and yeah, but the odds of someone named Brown murdering someone else named Brown. I'm like, I understand it's a very popular name. Like, like, yeah, like Johnson or Smith or all those, but it's like, yeah. How, how likely is it the guy you fucking murder? 
has the same fucking same last name. name. Yeah, it's interesting. Like in all of the reporting around the case, like all of the news articles about it, they all mention that there's no relation. Just because, because I, that, that's yeah. the question would have whether whether it was a domestic dispute of some sort. Yeah. yeah. So after the um, case, did you go look at all the news articles that came out from around the time of it? You know, I've been so busy that it wasn't until yesterday that I actually read any of the new art new any of the new oh yeah oh yeah i know where you were looking (laughs) yeah it wasn't until yesterday that i read any of the news articles about it at all um tracy after i came home that the night that it all concluded and i told her about the trial like she started reading some of the stories about it and contrasting what the news article had said with what i told her about what had happened and what we learned throughout the case And so it was interesting to see how there can be a lot of reporting around something that presents nothing but factual information, but it's still ultimately misleading because it leaves out a whole bunch of background information and a whole bunch of other facts that color what happened during the incident itself. Like you can report factual information and still be wildly wrong. Yeah. Which is why they don't want you looking at any of that before the trial so you don't get any misconceptions about what the fuck happened yeah yeah which uh, it was just really interesting to me there there are a lot of different things i think about in communicating with people about you know i try to i try to make my communication with people online as clear as possible while still trying to be as concise as possible and sometimes you can't really do that but it's interesting how different lines of communication can break down just based on what on one particular word that is misplaced or a perception of a word or your background history with dif- with different things like there's so many ways in which communication can go awry so quickly that it's always interesting to me to kind of replay conversations where it ends badly to figure out what well, could I have done better to make it better in the future well, I, I find it quite funny when I go on to like when some like when there's a big discussion going on on one of your comments, mm-hmm. and I see that person, and I know oh this person's going to get offended by Dan, just because I I, I I I well I, I know your communication how you communicate and you want to make things clear, mm-hmm. but I think some people online when you make the comment like hey you said this and this I just want to make sure that what you're saying is correct and all this and then. There's always going to be that person that takes you trying to clarify what's going on as being like, well, fuck you, dude. What the fuck <laughs> are you talking about, man? Like, that's not what I said. It's like, no, no, I'm trying to clarify. Yeah, I mean, that happened just a couple days ago. Like that, I, I posted something about the student loan forgiveness. And there's a libertarian guy who likes to comment on shit every now and then on my on my wall. And he made some comment about now, well, who's going to pay for other people's things or whatever. And I was like, well, who, what does he mean by other people? And so I just want, like, I, I asked a simple clarifying question, like, what do you mean by other people? And his response was something like the people who are getting this loan forgiveness, don't be obtuse. And it's like, okay, well, first you don't know that I was being obtuse. You're just assuming that. And so you're being an asshole. So my comment back was just don't be an asshole. Like I'm asking you a simple fucking question. It was not confrontational. It wasn't meant to be an insult or I wasn't trying to be an asshole. I'm just trying to make sure that our dialogue here is as clear as possible and you're being an asshole. So fucking stop that. Yeah, I actually, I actually got, 
got into a short argument. They didn't reply to my my response to them because uh, they had said something like, well, I didn't sign up to have our government pay for all these fucking people's loans. And I'm like, I didn't sign up to pay for corporations' loans. They're like, dude, you better look up what a loan is. And I'm like, yeah, a PPP loan is by definition a loan. It is a loan that large billionaire corporations took out and now they don't have to pay it back mm-hmm. you know, at over a trillion dollars. And I didn't I didn't get any response from that because I don't think he knew that what PPP meant or what they were. Like maybe he thought I meant the tapes or I'm like no the like so I basically I was like, so a PPP loan isn't a loan? So when these rich companies don't have to pay back the loans they took from our federal government at over a trillion dollars? They get loan they, forgiveness for that? They get, they get loan forgiveness? Like their loans were forgiven, they just don't have to pay them back? Where most of these college students have already paid back the original amount they, they, they borrowed? And much more, usually? Much more than that because of the interest rates where... These PPP loans had zero interest rates and they just never had to pay any of it back, like not mm-hmm. a penny. Mm-hmm. So the government's already received all the money they loaned out for student loans, then some. So you're not paying for shit. And it's not yeah. going to affect the economy because students haven't been paying on federal loans for the last two fucking years. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to add to inflation. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was just one of those things. But I mean, I get, I run into that all the time where, yeah. you know, me just being curious and wanting to make sure that I understand exactly what they're saying before I tear into them. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, I just find it funny the amount of people that get offended by you asking questions. Right? Like, yeah. And, and that's all it is. It's me asking questions to try to make sure that I understand what they're saying. And sometimes they get really fucking pissed about it. Yeah. And sometimes they'll, like, I'll ask a question and they'll write this whole long thing that doesn't at all address the question that I asked. And it's like, okay, well, great. You said all of this other stuff, but what I wanted to know was this. Why didn't you answer this question? Like, oh, well, you're just trying to trap me into stuff. And it's like, well, no. no. Like, if you think it's a trap, what does that say about you? Like, if you can't defend your thing over a simple little fucking question and you avoid it all at all costs while writing out this lengthy oh. reply... Why the fuck can't you just answer a simple fucking question about it? It's not a trap. It's if this simple question exposes what a weak position you have, then maybe you should switch positions or re-examine your position. Yeah. Instead of, you know, spending a half an hour typing out this lengthy reply that doesn't at all address anything that I fucking asked, man. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm getting sidetracked. Don't worry. <laughs> I, my, my, my brain is getting sidetracked right now with other things I want to say, but let's continue with this trial. Okay. <laughs> So then the defense gets up and presents their case and they said, and the defense attorney gets up and he says right away, I'm, I'm not going to try to tell you that Patrick Brown, my defendant or my, my client did not shoot Darnell Brown. You're going to see it on tape. He, you're going to see him talking to the police and confessing that he shot and killed Darnell Brown. What the state doesn't want you to know And what they've tried to already poison the well about is that Darnell Brown was an associate of Pat somebody. I can't remember this Pat. It was Pat shit. No, I wish I could remember more. But it's, it's Pat, Pat something. Anyway, this, this other Pat guy, 
apparently is like the head of a local gang. Um, he's the way he was portrayed by the defense is as some kind of like MS 13 guy or something. Not really even MS 13, but like, uh, he's a bad dude who has a lot of criminal associates who, you know, he, he runs a drug dealing gang, uh, that is not at all averse to using violence to achieve whatever means they may want to achieve, um, that, that he's a bad dude and that his association with the decedent with, with Darnell Brown is that they were friends and Darnell, uh, knew this Pat guy who's this gang leader and that Patrick, the defendant, um, was married to ended up dating and then marrying the target of affections for this Pat gang leader guy. And so this gang leader guy is upset with Patrick. Patrick moved to Salt Lake city, uh, or moved to Utah about three years ago from Alabama. And that's all we really know about that is that he moved to Salt Lake city from Alabama and that he's a fairly religious guy who still talks to his pastor all the time and is trying well, to start a, nice a new life guy. for himself. He meets this woman, he falls in love, he courts her, they get married, and then he discovers that she has this past with this criminal gang leader who is now, you know, set his henchman in opposition to anything and everything Patrick is trying to do. The Patrick is trying to start his own uh, business where he would sell clothing. And the, oh, I thought you were going to say math. And the, the day of the incident, he, he, you know, that he had planned to basically open his own storefront within a couple weeks and was out just transacting business with a friend of his when Darnell Brown rolled up on him and started making fun of him because of the car that he was driving. So what we learned throughout the case, and I'm not going to keep, I'm not going to keep going back and forth and back and forth with prosecution and defense. The basic facts of the case were that on the day in question on April 21st, uh, Darnell Brown loads his family. So it's, it's Darnell and his fiance and his 16-year-old daughter and his infant daughter who is in a car seat, they all get into his Chevy Tahoe that is lifted and on like 35, 36-inch rims. And it's this Very big vehicle. Bad for Salt Lake City potholes. You're gonna <laughs> you're gonna dent a rim with that. Oh yeah, you're gonna fuck up your you're gonna fuck up your wheels. Uh, but he loads his family in the Tahoe. Uh, they were bound to go out and have breakfast at uh, the original pancake house. And then they were going to go look at homes, I believe in uh, sugar house. I was going to say, and, was he going to be your neighbor? And no, <laughs> but they, <laughs> that, that all of these people were living in an apartment complex in the area or in the vicinity of where this all went down. So well, even, even them going out to look at a house in Sugar House. Sugar House is not a cheap area to get a house. No, not at all. Yeah. It's a, it's a very expensive area for a home. Like, mm -hmm. even before home prices went up, Sugar House was pretty fucking pricey. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a well-to-do area, for sure. 
in Salt Lake County. So he loads up his family. They're going to go to breakfast. Um, Patrick had received a call earlier in the day from a friend who is a mutual friend of both Patrick and Darnell. This guy's name is E. Apparently, I don't know what E stands for, but that's his nickname. Ecstasy. Uh, Patrick, yeah, Patrick's nickname is Bama because he came from Alabama. Oh, yeah. Uh, Darnell, I don't know if he had a nickname, but he Darnell is a large fellow, uh, well over six feet tall. And from all of the witnesses that were put on the stand, Darnell is a brawler. Uh, he likes to get in fist fights with people. He thinks that's awesome. He, he's got a big <laughs> fucking mouth. He likes to run his big fucking mouth all of the time, and he gets in fights all of the time. But that he's old school, so he didn't like guns. He didn't like guns. He would just beat the shit out of you. Yeah. And with uh, your fist. For some people, that is a perfectly acceptable way of handling any and all interactions that you have with people, is that if I disagree with you, then I'm uh, if I'm bigger than you, I can threaten to beat you up, and that's just the way the world works. And some of us are adults. So Darnell loads his family. They're going to go to the pancake house, going to go look at homes. Uh, Patrick had received a call from E, who had previously bought a couple outfits from him and wanted to change colors. So Patrick loads a bunch of clothing into his, uh, he, had, he had bought his wife a Range Rover Evoke. Uh, a little black Range Rover Evoke. For people who don't know, it's a Range Rover. Range Rovers are are nice, uh, high-end vehicle. The Evoke is a smaller version of the primary Range Rover. Uh, the Evoke is a little bit sleeker. I think his wife's was a two-door. Uh, it's a little smaller. So Patrick is talking to either transacting business on the side of the road. You know, he's got his his rear hatch open, one of the doors open. Darnell rolls up on him and starts mocking him, uh, tells Patrick something like, oh, is that is that your little bitch mobile there? That's a little bitch car that you're driving. And Patrick tells him, oh, well, I just bought this a few days ago for my wife. This is my wife's car. Um, but yeah, big deal. So what? Yeah, it's a little bitch car. Okay, and it's, it's my bitch's car, man. Yeah, so no, no. yeah, so, so Darnell just keeps running his mouth, and finally Patrick is just like, "Hey, man, you know what? Fuck you! Just fuck off! I'm like, I'm not, I wasn't bothering you. I'm here with E. We're talking, and apparently like, E, I don't know know, you. yeah, E knows both Patrick and Darnell, and uh, they know each other through their association with a local barber shop that they all go to. Mm. The barber shop is owned by Flex, who is friends with E. And uh, E works at the barbershop. That's how Patrick knows him. That's how Darnell knows everybody. That's how everybody knows everybody is through the barbershop. And then, it, you know, and also because of Patrick's wife's association with this Pat, somebody who is a criminal gang leader, apparently, uh, in the in the area. Um, so... Patrick tells Darnell, hey, you know, I'm just here doing business with E. Like, fuck off. Leave me alone. Just go away. They have words back and forth and back and forth. At one point, Patrick says something to Darnell that nobody could remember. Nobody could remember what he said, but it really pissed Darnell off to the point where Darnell gets out of his vehicle and approaches Patrick. And from all eyewitness accounts, Patrick backs up with his hands up and says, hey, man, I don't want any problems. Just leave me the fuck alone. Just 
just go the fuck away. I'm just doing shit here. I don't even know why you're hassling me. Uh, they continue going back and forth and back and forth. So then at one point, Patrick says, look, I'm fucking tired of dealing with you. Get the fuck out of here. I have a gun. I know how to use it and I'll use it to defend myself if I have to, because Darnell at this point is threatening to beat him up. Like he's saying, you know, throwing around the N word at each other, of course, back and forth. And you know, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. What's going on here? This isn't any of your business back and forth, back and forth. And Darnell says, bullshit. You don't have a gun. Show me your gun. You little starts, starts saying whatever and says, you don't have a gun. Show me. And Patrick says, all right. So he goes around to the passenger side of the vehicle, opens the passenger side door, opens the glove box, pulls out the gun and, and just holds it down and says, see, here's the gun. And from Darnell's 16 year old daughter, we learn that she sees Patrick get the gun and she's like, Oh, well, this is bad. We need to get out of here. So she's upset. The Darnell's fiance who is sitting in the passenger side is upset saying, Hey, you know, let's just get out of here with this is what the hell is going on. Yeah. Like we're going to breakfast. Let's just go to fucking breakfast, get back in the car. So, you know, apparently then Darnell gets really upset, says, Oh, you're going to, you're going to show me a gun. You're going to threaten me with a gun in front of my family. And Patrick's like, look, man, just leave me the fuck alone. I'm you wanted me to get it out. I showed you the gun now. Fuck off. So Darnell says something to the effect of, Oh, I'll show you, you wait right here. And he gets, he does get back in his vehicle and he leaves Patrick and E E tells Patrick, look, man, I don't want anything to do with what's going on. Like, I've only got, you know, I've got 135 bucks or whatever. I'll give you this for the clothing. Uh, I don't have the full 200 I owed you. So I'll give you this. We'll, we'll settle up later, but like, I'm out of here. I don't want to have anything to do with this. And he fucks off. So Patrick, you know, E leaves, Patrick puts everything back in his car, closes the rear hatch and he goes to leave. Then we learn, uh, also from Darnell's fiance and daughter that Darnell sees Patrick leaving and decides to follow him. So Darnell had left and was headed back to wherever we don't know. And it was interesting the, that Darnell's fiance and daughter both were kind of cagey about what Darnell was planning to do or had done after he left the, like on the stand, they were both like, you know, we're, well, we just kept telling him that we wanted to go to breakfast and, but apparently he sees Patrick leaving and instead of going to do whatever he was going to do, Darnell turns around and starts following Patrick. Well, Patrick sees that Darnell is following him. And so they put up on the display in the courtroom, um, the route like, that they took and you can yeah. see that they, you know, that, that Patrick drove straight for a little while and then he took a left and then he took a right and then he took a left and then he took a right and then he took a left. Like, you could see like that it trying was trying to lose him. Yeah. Either he was trying to lose him or just confirm that he was being followed. And all of the witnesses said that, yeah, they were driving a little bit fast and it was clear that Patrick wanted to get away, but you know, Darnell is honking at him the whole time. He's right on his ass. He's, he's following behind him, you know, in and out of lanes, honking, yelling at him. And they come to the intersection at 45th South and Main Street in Murray, uh, right close to the Infinity dealership. Like, I've been on this road. I've, I've oh, yeah. like, you're showing all the pictures of these places that I've been I, I, to. I, I, 
I can see it in my head right now just from going to your house. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Over and over. I've, like, I've seen all these intersections. So they stop at the intersection there. Um, Patrick is at the light at the intersection. Darnell is behind him. Um, they're at the light. Patrick is, or Darnell is still honking, yelling at Patrick, you know, telling him to get out of his car. He's going to beat the shit out of him, whatever. Uh, Darnell's family is telling him to stop. They just want him to go home. This is stupid. And, uh, while they're sitting at the intersection, Patrick leans out the window and yells at Darnell. If you follow me for one more block, I'm going to kill you in front of your family. And Darnell hearing that gets even more enraged. So he backs up and then rams into the back of Patrick's. Oh, Uh, yeah. The, by all accounts, he backed up, you know, between 10 and 15 feet and then floored it and plowed into the back of Patrick's car. At which point Patrick goes through the intersection, makes a U-turn as he's making the U-turn. Darnell starts backing up his car. Um, whoever was behind Darnell saw him rear end Patrick and noped out. They're like, okay, well I'm gone. So then Darnell was free to be able to back up even farther. Um, the, the, according to all of the court documents and the evidence presented, it said that he backed up 166 feet from the initial collision. That's a, it's a fair amount of distance for sure. So, but so. They're at the intersection. Darnell rear ends Patrick. And even according to um, Darnell's fiance, Dina, and his daughter, Cadence, as soon as he rammed, and they both used the word rammed, that he rammed into the back of Patrick, that the mood in the car instantly changed. And Darnell said something like, oh, fuck. Like he realized, I just fucked up. Like I like, took this too far. Yeah, like I've just rammed into the back of somebody's car in the middle of the fucking day, in the middle of a fucking intersection. And I've shown him a gun already. And well, no, Patrick is the one who showed the gun. Okay. But Darnell, Darnell is following him. And then Patrick says, if you keep following me, I'm going to kill you in front of your family. Darnell gets pissed, rams into the back of him. Everybody in, the, in Darnell's car says the mood changed instantly and he realized he'd fucked up. Like he said, oh, fuck. And threw it into reverse and started backing up from Patrick's point of view. He doesn't know what the hell is going on. He's yeah. He was transacting business on the side of the road with a friend. This guy shows up, starts making fun of him, starts threatening him, says he's going to beat the shit out of him. This guy has an association with this Pat guy who is the head of a criminal organization. And they have some beef from Patrick marrying the object of this other Pat guy's love, love interest. And Arnell is friends with this Pat guy and he's Pat Bush. That's what it is. Pat Bush is the the last name of this guy. Oh, the Bush family always fucking things up. (laughs) So we've, we've had the initial confrontation, the following through traffic, they come to a light. Uh, Patrick says, stop following. Like if you keep following me, I think his exact words on the stand were something to the effect of, or well, he didn't take the stand. But what was presented, uh, and according to everybody else there, they all agreed that pretty much what he said was, if you follow me one more block, I'm going to kill you in front of your family. And that's when Darnell lost it, plowed into the back of him. So he slams into the back of him. Uh, Patrick doesn't know what's going on. 
but he goes through the intersection, starts making U-turn. Meanwhile, Darnell is backing up, backs up 166 feet. Um, Patrick makes his U-turn, drives back, and as he's approaching uh, Darnell's vehicle, so now they're coming, so a, you know, like head on. Yeah, but I mean, Darnell was in the right-hand lane, and of course, Patrick, after making his U-turn, was on on the oh, right. Okay. So, you, so they're so, in the correct lanes of traffic. Yeah, they're they're both in correct lanes of traffic, but now they're they're you know almost facing. facing each other. Yeah, the road right there kind of curves around a little bit, so the guy behind darnell like darnell backs up 166 feet and this truck that's approaching has to stop and that's why darnell stopped where he did was because this other truck pulled up behind him so this the video that you see comes from two different locations one of them is from a kid who was sitting at the intersection at the same intersection but he was proceeding um so like patrick and darnell were facing north this kid is facing east at the intersection after having just gone to McDonald's and picked up some chicken nuggets. He says what he hears is a couple guys yelling at each other. Like he said that the song on his phone had stopped. And so he picked up his phone to change songs. And in between, in that little lull of silence, he hears a couple guys yelling at each other. He sees the one car back into the other. And then he's like, so I think, and he was on the stand. He's like, I figured there's going to be some kind of world star stuff going on. So I get, you know, I've already got my phone in my hand. So I turn it on and start recording. And so the video from his perspective is you see Patrick uh, make the U-turn and head back toward Darnell. And then you see Darnell get out of his car and without even stopping, like he's, he slowed down to almost a stop, but not quite Dar uh, Patrick leans out of his car and you hear bam 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 and before the last shot is fired darnell is already falling and hits the back of patrick's suv as patrick leaves mm -hmm. and then you see uh dina uh darnell's fiance exit and walk around the back of the vehicle and she's screaming and you know darnell has been shot obviously is on yeah. the ground bleeding. you just hear a bunch of screaming and then this guy is like i'm getting the fuck out of here so so he leaves uh the the other video that you see is from a business at the end of the street because that street kind of curves around to where it meets uh main street mm -hmm. and so you see it looks like probably video from like a ring doorbell or something at this at this business at the end of the street and so you see basically the same thing you see uh darnell backing up and coming to a stop while Patrick is making his U-turn and Patrick, as he's coming past Darnell, you see Darnell get out, close door behind him and then kind of flinch when he sees that Patrick has a gun, you hear the four shots, Darnell hits the ground and Patrick drives away. The, the most, dis and then those were not pleasant to watch. I mean, you're, you're watching somebody who, you know, died, Die, yeah. you, like you're watching them be killed on this video the more disturbing video uh that we were shown i think the i think it was the last day of of the trial was from the officer who arrived first on scene and he pulls up from behind patrick's car so what you see from his from this officer's uh like dash cam view, his, his body cam okay. is 
you know, you're, you're obviously inside his cruiser. You see him turning the wheel, moving, whatever, come to a stop, open the door, get out and then start running over to where Darnell is on the ground. And there's a woman who's doing chest compressions and somebody else there who has a, I don't know what it's, I'm sure you know what it's called. It's the thing that goes over your nose and mouth and they're squeezing the bulb to force oh, air a, in. A, a big valve mask. Okay. A bag valve vest? Bag a big valve. valve mask. Okay. So somebody's got one of those. Um, an, an, a woman is doing chest compressions and the cop, you know, runs over there and immediately like gets down on his knees, tells the lady, I'll take over. And so he just starts doing chest compressions and he's them questions while he's doing them and on the stand the, the officer said you know i don't know who these people were uh clearly they've had some kind of medical training he said but they weren't they weren't emts like who were oh, called wow. to them. they were just they were just bystanders who happened like, to have training oh, and know-how and, and, and equipment <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's like i don't know i don't know where they came from i still to this day don't know their names or anything he said but i can that's tell you we all call, that, that, that's what we call a utah prepper <laughs> the person who's ready for anything to happen at any fucking time would be the only person that would have like i've got like a a, a kit in my garage if i if i fuck myself up uh-huh. and in there is a mask for cpr but it's the kind where you put it over the person's mouth and you breathe through the tube so you're not having to lock lips yeah the bag valve mask is like the I guess the bigger version of that, where you're not even breathing into their mouth, you're using the bag, you're squeezing breathe, that big full, yeah, to, yeah, to breathe for them, yeah. So that's that's a Utah prepper, yeah. So, <laughs> so, the, so the cop was like, I don't know who these people were, but you know they clearly had some training and equipment. He's like, and I can tell you from personal experience that I know it's exhausting to do chest. Oh yeah. He said, so when I arrived, like m- the first thing I did was to relieve that person. I don't, because I don't know how long they'd been doing there, but I knew that it's exhausting work. Yeah. So I, you know, I instantly got down on my knees, took over for her doing chest compressions while I'm asking questions. Um, he said, and, and you can see as I'm doing chest compressions and then they, then they're showing the video and playing the audio of the video. Uh, and they would stop it every now and then for questions for this officer. But like, as he as he drops down to his knees and the woman moves out of the way, you can see that Darnell is just covered in blood and chunks of brain and skull are on the front of his shirt. Like, yeah. And, and as the woman is doing chest compressions, his body's just, it's just jello flopping on the ground there as she's doing it. If you do chest compressions properly, you Mm -hmm. will break ribs. Yeah. It's a yeah. guarantee you are going to break their ribs if you do it right. Oh, yeah? Wow. Oh, yeah. Like, that's how much... Because, like, for an adult, you have to compress, like, four to six inches into their chest. So oh, you've wow. got to push, and you got to push four to six inches in there. So doing that over and over, the, usually the theme of, uh, 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 staying alive, staying alive, uh, 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 uh so you, if you keep that song in your head, that's the I'm tapping my feet right now. Like that's the rhythm you want to try to give a hundred compressions a minute. So that oh, wow. song has a hundred beats a minute. So uh 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 uh, staying alive, staying alive. That's kind of how rapidly you're doing it, and each time you do it, 
you have to come completely off the chest, mm-hmm. which is the 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 rebound portion. Because if you don't let the chest rebound, you're not letting it do the full Re-inflate. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got to push a full four to six inches in again, then let it completely rebound, come completely off of it, and go right back in. So you're literally slamming into a person's chest a hundred times a minute and it will break ribs. Oh yeah. Well, and like, it, like I said, and like the officer said, it's, it's, it's exhausting work to do that. Oh, for yeah. any length. Which, which is why Uh-oh. that change out happens because if they find that when people get tired from giving chest compressions, they don't they're let they're, they're, they're resting on the chest. They're not letting it rebound. So you're not letting uh-huh. the chest come completely back out. So you're not letting it actually like, like if you take a bag and you squeeze it and you let it suck air back in, but if you're not letting it suck all the air back in, you're just giving short, like you keep pressure on it the whole time. You're uh-huh. not letting it actually do what you're trying to do, which is basically compress the lungs, compress the heart, let it completely rebound, then compress it again, let it rebound. And if you keep putting pressure on it, when you get tired, you're not giving proper chest compressions and you're more likely to have the person die. But mm. from this story, I doesn't sound like he had much of a chance to begin with. Yeah. I mean, when the officer takes over, like I said, you can see obvious chunks of brain and skull on, on Darnell's chest and, and on the ground next to him. And then as the officer is doing the compressions, he says, uh, so, you know, how many wounds have we got? What, what's the situation? And, you know, you hear different people answering him and he's like, and what is this wound here? Is this an entrance or an exit? And you hear somebody say, oh, I'm sure that's an exit. And then the officer turns and pans and it's just like the whole back of his head is gone. Hi, I'm Lucian Greaves, spokesperson and co-founder of the Satanic Temple. Check out my website, grayfaction.org, if you want to be disgusted and alarmed. You're listening to Godless Revolution. So you're a cool priest, are you? A cool priest? Yeah. No, I'm a big reader with no friends. Are you a cool person? Oh, I'm a pretty normal person. A normal person? Yeah, a normal person. What makes you a normal person? Well, I don't believe in God. Love it when he does that. If you have questions, comments, concerns, compliments, corrections, criticisms, or concepts for content, contact the show via email at godlessrevolution at gmail.com, by text or voicemail at 330-81-REBEL, or Twitter the twatter at TGR Podcast. Thank you! So I get why they're doing compressions, like maybe in the odd chance and hope, but... The, the reason why they do that is an officer or even an EMT or a paramedic is not allowed to do to declare death. Yeah. You have to actually have like a person there to be like, what's going on? What's happening? We're calling it. And mm. a police officer is not allowed to do that judgment. So even if we showed up, like, like we had the guy a few months ago that rolled his car, his head was literally top of his skull was smashed in the metal of the car Ugh. brains were exposed still had to do CPR until someone else could come on scene that was allowed to declare death. If cause as an EMT, as a police officer, you're not allowed to make that decision. Someone else that is a higher status has to come in and go, yep, we're calling it right now. This person's dead. Yeah. Until that person makes that decision. 
you have to keep going. You have to still kind of form life saving. Yep. And that's kind of the rule. It is kind of like, I've heard of guys that have went on suicides where they're like, it's an obvious death, Mm -hmm. but we have to go in to see if we can't bring them back because we have no clue when this happened, how long ago this happened. If there's a chance until that person that's allowed to call death comes in to actually say, yep, we're done. This is, this is done. Yikes. But yeah, that was, that was, so the, you know, the, the, the video of the actual shooting wasn't nearly as bad to me anyway, of the aftermath of the shooting and, and seeing the damage and just, like I said, his obviously to anybody watching it, dead body being pounded on by somebody and like all of the blood and brain and gore, like life saving is violent. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we see all of that. Um, and you know, and this basically then concludes the trial. I mean, they, they bring up different witnesses. The, the witnesses we heard from were, uh, I think the first witness that they called was the state calling Dina, the, the fiance of Darnell, um, whose testimony on the stand, like all of us as a, all of us as a jury in the deliberation room, were like, there was something really weird about the way she testified. Like there was, there's something off like hiding. Yeah. Like she was trying to hide something or cover something. She didn't want, she didn't really want to talk about certain things. Um, yeah, she was, she was just really cagey in the way she presented her testimony on, on the stand. Um, so we heard from her, we heard from, uh, Darnell's daughter who was a passenger in the back seat. We heard from the kid who recorded the video, uh, who, like I said, had just gotten his chicken nuggets on lunch and was going to eat them. And was looking uh, for heard, an epic TikTok. We heard or from world star, world star. Uh, yeah, we good. heard from the the driver of the truck that was behind Darnell. That like that's where Darnell stopped, and he testified that he saw you know Patrick make the U turn and come back, and he said. And I could see through the windshield that he already had the gun in his hand as he was approaching. He said it was, you know, on his chest. You could see he had he a was, bright yellow shirt on and you could clearly see the outline of the gun on his chest as he's driving up to Darnell. And then as he gets right next to him, like his entire torso, you can see on the video, like his left arm, right arm, head, chest, they're all out of the vehicle as he's reaching and like point blank shoots Daryl in the head. He was, and- and like from what you're saying right now, from everything I've watched, because I watch a lot of this type of stuff. Yeah. I, I get into like criminal type shit. Yeah. And, and my analysis of what you said, he didn't run. At this point in time, he had every opportunity. Instead of doing a, instead of doing a U-turn, he could have fled. But the fact that he mm-hmm. didn't flee that he went back to where Darnell was and continued to engage in this makes it not seem like self-defense at all. Yeah. So, so like I said, we heard from the, we heard from Dina, we heard from cadence. So Dina's the fiance cadence is the daughter. Uh, We heard from the detective 
who investigated the case. We heard from the officer who first arrived on scene. We heard from the patrol sergeant. We heard from the guy who was behind Darnell. We heard from the kid that had gotten his McDonald's. And we heard from the uh, person who was taken over for the state medical examiner who was in that position at the time to present that former Emmy's evidence and autopsy results and everything. Um, we find out that Patrick fired four times at Darnell, striking him three times. Uh, one bullet entered Darnell's right cheek and exited out the back of his neck. Another one entered his left cheek, um, passed through his nasal cavity and brainstem and out the back of his head. And Which that was the instant death. That's yeah, that was, dead that right there. Shot. And a third shot entered his neck and exited out, out his back. Okay. And, um, and then the fourth shot didn't strike him, but because he was through, falling. Yeah. But went through the rear passenger window and ended up lodged in the roof of Darnell's Chevy Tahoe. What kind of caliper was he firing? Uh, nine millimeter. Yeah, it was a, I believe they said it was a Ruger nine millimeter. They showed us the gun. They showed us the bullet fragments and casings and all of that um, as, as part of the state's evidence. But so we hear all of the testimony. We, we watch the video. Um, we hear the opening and closing arguments, questioning of, of witnesses. And then we're handed, you know, we take a break. We're handed when we return a large packet, like thick packet with, I think, an additional 30, 30 some odd instructions for the jury. And it's, oh, wow. um, so they lay out that the state has is presenting, I think, four different charges, one for each bullet that was fired, basically, or five charges. Um, and how can they like that? that that's okay. That just sounds weird to me. Like a charge for each bullet, like mm -hmm. so for a murder or attempted murder charges. Yeah, so it's, I think the charges were, you know, one of the charges, of course, was murder. Um, the second and third charges were both, um, it was like reckless endangerment with a firearm, discharging a firearm at a person uh, and or vehicle. And then the fifth charge was possession of a firearm. And, and in the instructions, they, they, they tell you, okay, well, here's, and, and so one of the, one of the most interesting things that I took away from the case is that the defense doesn't have to do fucking anything like the defense doesn't even have to show up to court. The entire, the burden of everything is on the state to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt that the charges they have filed you should convict this person of those charges. The defense doesn't have to call a witness. They don't have to present an opening argument. They don't have to present a closing argument. The defense doesn't have to take the stand. They don't have to do fucking anything at all. This it's the, all of the burden is on the state. Um, the, there are some slight modifications to that though, because of the nature of this case that the defense that was on offer 
was that, you know, this of course wasn't premeditated murder. Uh, they were trying to argue that this was in self-defense that in Utah, there is no, you have no duty to retreat. You don't have to, you don't have to leave a scene. Oh, really? You don't have to try to, Utah is kind of a stand your ground state. You have, it's, it's not like the wording isn't necessarily that you can stand your ground, but it's that you have no duty to retreat. What about returning to like, 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 like when I see stand your ground, like I think I, I like, I, I agree with castle. Well, I, I agree with castle doctrine Mm -hmm. where your home is your castle. Mm -hmm. If someone is attacking your home and the only, like you've tried everything they're they're, they're busting down your door. Mm -hmm. And you put some rounds through your door to defend your home. I agree with that. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong and I could be wrong and maybe neither one of us know, and that's fine. We can, we can talk about it or, or I'm sure one of our listeners will let us know. Yeah. Doctrine stipulates in particular that you have no duty whatsoever to safeguard the life of an intruder to your home. So if somebody enters your home, uh, armed, you know, unarmed, whatever you can kill them yeah, without, without your explicit consent that you are within your rights to murder them and like they if they yes. if they enter your home attack you and then are turning to flee and you shoot and kill them according to castle doctrine you're perfectly within I your think rights that depends on the state yeah uh i do know from the sidewalk to your house as long as they fall within that area in most states castle doctrine applies yeah if they're yeah, running I, down the street and in front of your neighbor's house, that might apply in Texas, but not all <laughs> states because the person is fleeing and yeah. you are no longer in danger. Yeah. And, and like I said, I could be incorrect, but it's, it's my understanding that Castle Doctrine applies to within your home. Yes. If somebody is in your home and even if they have, you know, in, in apparently in some states, apparently if the person attacks you, shoots you stabs you whatever and then f- turns to leave and you shoot them you could be prosecuted but okay. in your castle doctrine it's if even if you're attacked if that person turns to leave and you know is almost out the door and you shoot and kill them in some states you may be able to be prosecuted but under castle doctrine you you're not like this yeah if that person is home, in your entered, home yeah, if you're in my home, uninvited, un- unexpected, I have every right to kill you. If if yeah. I if I do, like that's yeah. you, I can't be prosecuted for murdering you. Yeah, and that's always been my understanding of Castle Doctrine. And the only reason why I brought up the killing the person down the street was from the case in Texas, where mm-hmm. the guy saw his neighbor's house being robbed, and he was on nine one one, and he literally went out and killed the two guys running down the street. And he was not charged because he was protecting his neighbor's property. Oh, wow. Yeah. That seems a little excessive. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Seems, seems, uh, because because the guy was not a threat to him, threat to Mm -hmm. his own life. But as I understand the castle doctrine, if they are in your home on your physical property, already looking to do harm, whether they have a weapon or not, you are allowed to use any force necessary to stop that threat. And if that means killing that person, Mm -hmm. it's justified. Yeah. 
Yeah, and like and there, like I said, I think there's a I think there may be a subtle subtle distinction that is covered by Castle Doctrine that yeah that if if somebody's in your house and attacks you, but then is trying to leave and they're then stopped you. from leaving because you kill them, that in states that does not have something akin to the Castle Doctrine that you could be prosecuted for yeah. killing. and that that could be the case. Yeah. Uh. Anyway, so you know having having said all of that so the first charges for murder and then charges 2 3 and 4 are for the other bullets that he fired uh the two that struck patrick but you know may or may not have ultimately led to his death and then the fourth one that is basically reckless endangerment with a yeah. with a gun when he shot into especially when it sounds like there's a minor in the car which is also another accessory yeah, two, Two miners in the back seat yeah. where the where the bullet went. We were shown pictures of the toddler who had cuts on her legs from the glass uh, okay. that was broken uh, from the bullet. Um, of course, testimony from the teenage daughter who was cl- on that side of the vehicle and said, "You know, as soon as she saw the gun, she turned and covered up the toddler, like put herself on top of the toddler while the shooting was happening." Um, such a badass uh, little girl. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. It. She. I. I was impressed with the way she handled herself and her composure. I was disappointed, though. Um, in in questioning one of the one of the other cool things and or interesting things that I learned through the trial is that while you know she was on stage, not on stage, she's on the witness. She's on the witness stand. And is being questioned, you know, the, the state prosecutors ask her a bunch of questions and then the defense attorney gets up and starts asking her questions and said, Which you know, started asking her questions about how, okay, so you guys show up on scene, you saw your dad and he's, you know, he and Patrick start, you know, calling each other names, throwing the N word around, challenging each other. Your dad is going to fight him. She's like, yeah, and he's and he says, so you know, have you have you seen your dad get into other fights before? And she's like, oh yeah, you know, he's old school. And he says, well, what do you mean by that? And she says, oh well, you know, that he's he he's not going to solve he's not going to use a gun to solve any of his problems. He's going to use his fists. He's going to just you know he'll get in fights, but he didn't he didn't like guns. He didn't have a gun. And the defense attorney asked something like, do you think this is do you think that's acceptable or do you think this is uh, a normal way to behave or something like that. And there was an objection. One of the cool things that I learned is that when there are objections, the judge of course will say sustained or, or, or overruled, or he'll ask yeah. for more information about it. And one of the interesting things was that there were a few different instances when an objection was raised and the judge would say, okay, now wait just a minute can you explain your objection a little bit more? And the attorneys would kind of get into it with each other. And then some point, either one of the attorneys or the judge would say, okay, well, let's, let's have a sidebar. And they would actually in the courtroom play white noise while the two attorneys were standing right in front of the judge and talking amongst themselves, but playing white noise so that everybody else couldn't really hear what they were saying. You don't see that on court TV. They just, it's just silence. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was, that was interesting. Or they'll lead the jury out while they have whatever discussions. Yeah. And there was some of that as well. Like they, they took us in and out of the room at various times and, and, you know, just had us stay in the jury deliberation room while they worked out 
as we found out later, a lot of the wording for some of the documentation and instructions that we were given. So the instructions okay. were given for the four counts, and then the fifth count was, you know, possession of a firearm. Okay. And like by a restricted person type thing, or was it just it doesn't say of a firearm? That. Oh, yeah, it say that in in the documents at all, but. And I'm guessing this is part of why they asked the question about, um, you know, who among you potential jurors has owned in the past or currently owns a firearm kind of thing, because they're you probably know the laws a little bit more than someone. Who yeah, you probably, yeah, you probably have more than a passing understanding of what the various laws are yeah. surrounding and restricting uh, possession of a weapon by somebody. Right. Yeah. Uh, so. um they they give us this packet the judge reads through all of the instructions you know reads through all of them um says that if there are any questions at all be sure that you inform the bailiff the bailiff will come and present those questions to me we'll return an answer to you while you're deliberating but you need to for each of these charges mark either guilty or not guilty and then there are two mitigating um issues that after you have decided guilty or not guilty on these other charges then you need to go through and decide whether these mitigating factors apply in this case or not. And okay. for one of the mitigating factors, and, and the judge explained that for this particular case and for this particular mitigating factor, this is the only thing that the, that the defense has to offer a positive defense for. Everything else, they don't have to participate at all. It's entirely the state's burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this person committed these crimes, but for these mitigating factors, for this one mitigating factor, because the defense has chosen to use this as a potential mitigating factor, they have to have provided positive defensive evidence for you to consider whether or not this mitigating factor comes into play. Was it whether or not he was allowed to possess a firearm? Uh, no, it was whether it had been shown that some something happened immediately prior to the uh, to the to the final incident or to the final okay. outcome that could have put a person in a state of mind where they felt threatened or at an extremely high state of emotion where they could not have where they could not have acted as any other a way. person yeah they where they something happened to where they were stimulated stimulated to the point where they could not have acted as a rational person or they did not have enough time to recover their senses in order to be to become a rational person and to think rationally and we did find that that mitigating factor was in play here because from all of the evidence pre presented, it was Darnell was the aggressor the whole time. Yeah. Like at no point did Patrick ever become the aggressor until he was rammed from behind and then saw the person who had harassed him, who had followed him, who had been honking and screaming at him, had rammed into his vehicle and then was backing up to do who knows what possibly ram this person again that Patrick then shot him and was offering that he shot him because he was acting in self-defense because he didn't know what the hell was going on. And then you find out throughout the trial also, um, 
according to not just the defense attorney, uh, but according to the prosecution and uh, Daryl's Darnell's fiance and the police that after Darnell was, was shot after Patrick shot Darnell, that Dina Darnell's fiance, after she exits the vehicle and, you know, of course is screaming and crying, she grabs Darnell's phone and doesn't call 911. She doesn't call the police, doesn't call his family. She calls Pat Bush. Oh, and Pat Bush arrives on scene shortly after the police are there. And so it's, and like I said, and Dina's testimony on, on the stand was really off and weird and, and, and a little bit well and a little bit wild. And then you find out also that not only did she call Pat Bush, but that, um, prior to her calling Pat Bush, there were other people who, who said that Darnell had started to make calls and said something to the effect of, Oh yeah, I got that N word in my sights right now. I'm following him. And, you know, so then all of this, uh, you know, follows him everywhere, honking, harassing, yelling at him. Patrick says, if you don't, if you follow me for one more block, I'm going to kill you in front of your family. Darnell gets incensed, rams into the back of him, thinks, oh, fuck, starts backing up. While he's backing up, Patrick makes his U-turn and shoots Darnell. And then Pat Bush shows up minutes after the police are on scene even. And sitting there surveying the whole thing, Dina leaves Darnell's body laying in the road after having called Pat Bush, goes over to Pat Bush's truck and is whispering a conversation back and forth, hands Pat Bush something. And then the police are still trying to figure out everything that's going on. See Pat Bush starting to leave and try to stop him. And he will not stop and just leaves the scene. And so there was, you know, there, it was intimated that perhaps Dina had passed off a weapon that had been in the vehicle that, you know, she gave that to Pat Bush, that, you know, Pat Bush was there to lend assistance to Darnell prior to Darnell being killed, that perhaps he was there to help Darnell be a gunman, Patrick, that, yeah, yeah that you know, there was this outside menacing influence who nobody will really talk about. And even the people who were there said, oh yeah, this happened, but we're not sure why he was on scene how he got there, why he was there or why he left or why he wouldn't stop when the police asked him to stop. But also because he wasn't part of the primary crime scene that it was just like, okay, well this could be just some random person. We're not going to stop every random person in the area. So he's allowed to leave the scene. That is suspicious. Yeah, definitely suspicious. So the, the two mitigating factors were, could it be, you know, could a reasonable person have believed that there was uh, an imminent threat to their safety, and then was there was was there evidence provided that would lead you to believe that something immediately preceding the shooting could have put a person in a heightened or extreme sense of emotion that they would not have been able to act rationally, and so when you take into account all of the other stuff that yeah. Patrick was, you know, on the side of the road conducting business with a friend. Darnell shows up and is being an asshole, taunting him, harassing him, threatening him, saying he's going to beat the shit out of him. Then leaves and says, you wait here. I'll show you leaves. Patrick doesn't know where he's gone. 
doesn't know what he's done in the meantime. Patrick leaves and then realizes that Darnell is following him and follows him for a good distance and then rams into the back of his car and then starts backing up to do who knows what. And that it was like, and it was all within the space of maybe 20 seconds that Darnell rammed into the back of Patrick starts backing up. Patrick's make Patrick makes his U-turn and then, and ends up firing at him. It was less than 20 seconds. The space of 20 seconds, if you are already being harassed, you're being followed, you're being told, wait here, I'll show you, you see somebody on their phone, um, you know you have this past history with this person who's been harassing you, is making threats, they ram into the back of your vehicle in the middle of the goddamn day, in the middle of an intersection, and then back up like... And and you are already out of your mind, scared, possibly. Yeah, I think that provided enough evidence to say that this person probably wasn't thinking very well. Oh, yeah. Wasn't a rational actor at this, at this point in time. You and, don't know if he's backing up to get out of the area or if he's backing up to gain more speed to ram you again. Yeah, to ram you even harder this next time, to, to provide some distance to shoot at you. Like, yeah. you don't know what the hell's going on. Um, but that you know, 20 seconds doesn't provide a person enough time to go through everything that Patrick had gone through and then be able to recover your senses and act as a rational person. And, and it's tough because you sit there and you think as a juror, okay, well, they're at an intersection. He's at the, he's at the front of the intersection. The light changes, light doesn't change. It doesn't matter. He's been rammed, but he could have gone Gone right, gone left, gone straight. Yeah, he could have. There were a bunch of other options available to yeah. him. But he chose to turn around and go back and shoot this person. And that's where I have the issue where he had other options, but he chose yeah, the deadly it, one. Yeah. And it makes it difficult to say that this was that this was an act of self-defense. And so yeah. the mitigating factor was that, excuse me, that um, acknowledging that it was not perfect self-defense where perfect self-defense means that you are an imminent threat of, of coming to harm either yourself or somebody else. And so you have acted to protect yourself or someone else from imminent harm. That is, that is perfect self-defense so is unperfect future harm. No. <laughs> so it's, it's the, so the perfect self-defense is that you acted uh, to like, save yourself or someone else from imminent in, harm. There was in, no other in that moment, like no yeah. other options in that moment. This is the only option I fucking have. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing that you can do to protect yourself is you had to act in self-defense. Otherwise you or someone else would have come to imminent harm. Yeah. Uh, imperfect self-defense is that you, you may have had other options available to you, but your state of mind and extenuating circumstances still would lead you to believe that you're acting in your own self-defense. You may have had other options, but you weren't necessarily acting rationally. And so, you know, in, when we watched, we reviewed the video over and over again because it was like, and then we're trying to time it out. Okay. And we, we're looking at it from the two different angles. Okay. So we know that he's just been rammed. And now we see Darnell backing up. And while he's backing up, Patrick is turning around. So it's Ram, 
I'm making my U-turn, I'm backing up and then shooting like within 20 seconds. And there's no way for, and it, and it was, I was, there was me and one other person who were the primary cheerleaders of, okay, it's not, of course it's not perfect self-defense, but can anybody say giving all of these circumstances, you know, based on the evidence that, that we have, he wasn't him, fearing for his life. Yeah. That, that you wouldn't have been scared shitless. Like there's a, there's a person who just out of the blue started harassing you saying they're going to kick the shit out of you. You tell them to leave you alone. You show them that you have a gun and are willing to use it to defend yourself. And they are still coming after you. They follow you for blocks and blocks. They ram you from behind. And this is after you've already shown them again. You've, you've tried to defuse the situation several times. You've tried to leave the situation. They've followed you. They've, you, after being followed, say, if, if you don't stop following me, this is going to be the consequences. And instead of stopping following you, they ram you from behind and then start backing up for, to do God knows what. And you have 15 seconds to decide what to do next. Are you going to continue fleeing as a black person? Are you going to call the police for help? Are you knowing everything that we know now about how police respond when black people are involved with calling the police and, and incidents of violence? Are you going to be excited to, to contact the police for help, knowing that the person behind you also has been making phone calls. You don't know to who to do what they've already gone somewhere to grab a gun. Maybe you don't know what they've done while they were out of sight. And then they've chosen to follow you and have gone out of their way to do so. Like the, the pancake house and sugar house are in the complete opposite direction from where Darnell started to fall. Like, like, he, Darnell went in the absolute opposite direction of the pancake house in order to follow Patrick around and do all of this shit. And, and, and so for me and this other person, uh, this, this woman, um, uh, she was a younger woman. And if I had to guess, I would say was probably from Pakistan. Um, there, there were no, there, she was the only person of any kind of color on okay. the jury. Everybody else were plain old white people. And you're probably <laughs> the only atheist there. Uh, maybe one of the other jurors at, at the end of Was Wednesday, like, I, I listened to your podcast. So yeah. <laughs> well, I recognize Wednesday that voice. <laughs> so Wednesday ends and then they escort us out of the building because they don't want us just wandering around, but they escort us out of the building into our cars. And, I'm getting in my car and it's got the atheist license plate on it. And one of the other jurors who is there sees me, you know, unlock the car and go to get in. He's like, Oh, Hey, I like your license plate. And I was like, Oh, thanks. Yeah. I saw it the other day. And I thought, I wonder if that's maybe somebody else serving on the jury with me. He's like, cool. I I really like that. And I was like, Oh, thanks. (laughs) So he may be an atheist. I don't know if not, he's at least, you know, happy to see that somebody's not afraid to say that they're an atheist very publicly. Um, but yeah, that was cool. And incidentally, now that you've reminded me of that person, uh, there were there were ten people sitting on this jury, heard the whole trial, received all of the instructions. At the end, at the end, after we've gotten the instructions and we're about to go back into the jury deliberation room, the judge says, "And I do need to inform you at this time that jurors number nine and number ten, 
you were selected as alternate jurors in this case uh, because, you know, in, in today's age, we don't know if something may happen that a juror needs to be excused for health reasons, for COVID, if they've yeah. done something that could possibly be prejudicial, uh, that they've acted in a way that is disqualifying. So we do have to have alternates and you two were selected as alternates in this case. And that, that guy who said he liked my license plate and everything, he was pissed. He was, <laughs> he had gone through the, the selection process, sat through everything, went through all of the instructions. And then at the last minute is like, Oh, thanks I'm for not your even part of this. Yeah. Yeah. Did he they, was, he was pissed. He was not happy. Did they make you take uh COVID tests upon entering the courthouse at all? Or was it, they did not make us take tests, but they did have us fill out a questionnaire every day that asked us, you know, have like, you been, how are you feeling? With anybody who has had, any of these kind of symptoms? Do you have any of these kind of symptoms? How are okay. you feeling today? Uh, yeah, all of all of that. They, they asked us all those kinds of questions. Um, but yeah, he was not happy. So, so we get through and we're and we you know mark guilty on everything, and then it's deciding the mitigating factors. And uh, I and this other woman were the two people who. On one of the mitigating factors, we were the only votes. And it was interesting, too, that on these mitigating factors, on the one mitigating factor of imperfect self-defense, um, it was that you had to you had to be that the jury had to be unanimous. So like on all of the on all of the guilty things, of course, we all had to be unanimous yeah. and we weren't. Yeah. And then on one of the mitigating factors, it had to be unanimous. And on the other it did not require unanimity. It just had to be a majority that, or like a super majority. No, not even that. It was just, Oh, it was just whether you have a, a unanimous decision or not, but you did not require, it did not require unanimity to say that this could be considered as a mitigating factor. So it, I mean, it was weighted in, according to everything that we saw, all, all of the evidence presented, the way the trial was conducted, it was very much weighted in favor of the defense that the state had to provide positive yeah. evidence that this person had committed these crimes, which I was really glad to see. And in arguing for these mitigating circumstances, um, you know, I, I just kept coming back to and harping on that Patrick could have at any moment from the, from the time Darnell initially rolled up on him to the time that he ultimately shot him that all along this path, he could have shot Darnell at any time, but he didn't. He, he could have shot him when Darnell asked him to show him the gun. He could have shot him when Darnell was threatening to beat him up. He could have shot him when Darnell threatened him by saying, stay here. I'm going to show you, but he didn't. He tried to defuse. He tried to say, look, I have a gun. This is what's going to happen. He could have shot him at any time that Darnell was following him all around. He could have shot him without even providing him a warning saying, if you don't stop following me, I'm going to shoot you. He could have shot him as soon as, as soon as Darnell ran, ran into the back of him. And he didn't at any point. It wasn't until after he was rammed and saw Darnell backing up that he chose that moment to quote unquote defend. Him. Yeah. And for somebody who is recently married, just bought a brand new vehicle, is trying to start his own business, was working with E and I told you that E uh, who was buying the clothes from him worked at this barbershop who was owned by this other guy named Flex. Flex being a, a local business owner 
uh, had some connections in uh, securing sites for Patrick's business that he was uh, hoping to open up. So we heard that, you know, he was within a couple weeks of opening up his own storefront and had been working with Flex to do all of that. Like a person setting out to start a new life for themselves, newly married, just bought a vehicle, just opening their business. There's no, there's no reason why they would have gone through all of that and then been harassed for all of this time, followed, rammed from behind, and then choose to shoot somebody. Just, just, because. you know what I mean? There's, there's no, I couldn't, I, I just had to keep stressing to everybody that like, he could have shot him so many different times oh, yeah. throughout all of this, right? He right could have. Shot when he so first grabbed the gun, he could have done it. That would have been yeah. probably the most opportune time to do yeah. it. Like he had every opportunity in the world to do all of this. And it wasn't until that final moment when it's like, okay, this guy's been harassing me, me, threatening me, rammed my car and is backing up to possibly do it again that he chooses to, to, he chooses positive defense yeah. rather than, rather than trying to retreat some more. So we, you know, the, I, I just kept coming back to that for everybody. And then the, the other woman said that, you know, she related a story of, okay, I know that I'm stupid and I do dumb things sometimes, but you know, one day I just keep thinking about one day I was on the freeway yeah. And, you know, I was late for something. And so I'm tailgating this guy ahead of me. And it's because, you know, and I knew that I was tailgating and that I probably shouldn't be tailgating him, but I was doing it and it was stupid, but he got really, really pissed off and then followed me for miles. She's like, and I was terrified because it wasn't just him in the car. He had like three other guys in the car with him and they're following me at high speed on the freeway right behind me. They're throwing things from their car at my car. They're trying to run me off the road. She's like, and there was no way that I could even try to think about calling the police for some help. Like there's no, like I'm actively fleeing from this person. And I was terrified. I wasn't in my right mind. I wasn't acting rationally as a rational person. I would have just slowed down and picked up my phone and called the police or driven to a police station. She's like, but I wasn't, I was terrified and it's because these people were harassing me and following me and threatening me. And I didn't know what was going to happen. So I wasn't acting rationally. And she's like, and this happened over miles and miles and miles and minutes and minutes of these guys following me. We're talking about 15 to 20 seconds here. There's no way that this guy could have been rational, that he was acting perfectly rationally when he decided to shoot this guy. And I think that swayed a couple other people who may have eventually voted with us. Um, but so we found both mitigating factors, returned our verdict. We go in, the judge seats us, has the jury four person. That's a whole other story that I could <laughs> um, but asks the jury four person for our verdict. She hands them to him. He reads through it to make sure that he understands everything. Uh, asks the rest of the jury members if we agree with what he's been presented and we all just kind of nod in affirmation. He says something to the effect that he's seen everybody nod their affirmation. And then he says, okay, well now I'll read aloud the uh, jury's verdict on these. And he says, you know, on the count one for murder, guilty count two for reckless endangerment with a firearm, guilty count three, four, five guilty on all of them. Um, and he says, and then as to the mitigating factors, uh, the jury has found that mitigating factor one is in play as imperfect self-defense. 
and mitigating factor two that uh, there were extenuating circumstances that this person could have could not have acted rationally or whatever. I said so with both of these mitigating factors and these, you know, this this is the verdict. Uh, we will set. I think sentencing was set for November seventh, something oh, wow. like that, early, early in November. Um, where we'll return for sentencing. At this time, I'd like to dismiss the jury and thank you for your service. If you'd like to hang around for a little while, we have some last minute or some final things that we need to take care of here, but I'll come into the deliberation room if you have some questions, any, anything you'd like to ask me about how the process went or just any questions in general, I'll be happy to answer anything that you got. So we go back into the jury room and of course everybody decides to stay because we want to Everybody had questions or wanted to hear what other questions everybody else had. Um, so the judge comes in and says, you know, well, thank you. At first, thank you all very much for your service. I really appreciate it. He said, I understand that a lot of people view jury duty as a burden or a hassle. He said, and I understand how they can see it that way because you all have your, <laughs> your lives. You yeah. This, this is something that you're called to do as a civic duty. And he said, I, I want to really personally and and honestly thank you all for your service because this isn't something that you necessarily have to do but the fact that you're all willing to do it uh speaks volumes and i appreciate your service and he said and two it's best to have people who like yourselves are going to be interested in the case and pay attention and you know take the time to consider everything rather than serious yeah rather than view this as a chore, something they don't want to be doing, something they're trying to get out of, because you want to be sure that in our system of justice, that the person who has been accused of a crime and possibly convicted has actually done that beyond a reasonable doubt. And so having educated, dedicated people like yourselves willing to put yourselves through this is very beneficial for our justice system and the rule of law and democracy. So that was all fine and good. And uh, then some of the questions that were asked, um, one of them was, uh, what, what was the charge about, you know, possessing a firearm about? And he said, well, okay, so now that the trial is over, I can tell you that, you know, Patrick Brown is a convicted felon who ah. is not supposed to be in possession of a firearm. Why would that said, come up during the trial? Because it's prejudicial. Oh, because if they tell you this person has done something else completely unrelated to the crime that they're yeah. accused of. Here. They've done something in their past that's hugely prejudicial. He but said I mean, so. You don't have to bring up what the federal crime is. Like a federal crime could be a lot of things. It doesn't have to be a violent crime or anything. But the fact that he's, I mean, even well, said sure, he's, but I mean, he's restricted from owning a firearm. Yeah, but. But yeah. that's still prejudicial, and they don't yeah. want to. They don't want to prejudice you. Prejudice. They don't want to introduce any bit of prejudice yeah. for you either way. Um, so he said, and and that one was really tricky. He said the day I think it was, I think it was Wednesday. Yeah, it was Wednesday because we were sitting in the. You know, they they presented a bunch of stuff, had witnesses, whatever, and then there was some arguments back and forth and an objection raised and we retired to the jury deliberation room and then we sat in there for like two and a half hours oh wow while they were doing whatever the fuck is going on and finally uh the judge comes in and he's like okay so we have printed off some things 
that, you know, basically the, the most everything is concluded. We have maybe a couple other witnesses, but, uh, we've been working on some wording for some things. So you have the option of either staying for a while and beginning deliberations. And if you need to, you can come back tomorrow or, you know, we still have some other things to wrap up. I'm thinking it might only take us about 10 minutes, but that's what they told us. When the- <laughs> like, Oh, it's your guys's call. You can leave now and come back tomorrow morning or, you know, we can continue on. And I said, I was the one who spoke up and I'm like, well, you know, I have other obligations that I need to attend to that. I can't just wait around here forever. Right. So I still have yeah, a life. I, yeah. I would like to go if that's okay. Um, and everybody else was like, yeah, that's fine. Whatever. So yeah. So at, you know, at the end of everything and the judges in there, he's like, you know, that was one of the things we were working on was trying to come up with the proper wording and negotiating between the attorneys that we wanted to put it on there as, as one of the charges, but we didn't, we were trying to figure out the best wording, uh, that wouldn't be prejudicial against. Yeah. To show any past things that might sway you in your decision. Yeah. And then another one of the questions was, um, has he been in custody this whole time? Like, is he in jail right oh, now? Or is, he, yeah. or is he? And the judge says, Oh no, actually I'm really glad that you asked that. He said, and I'm not just glad that you asked that, but I'm glad that it wasn't obvious that he has been in custody this entire time. He said, oh, wow. he said what you don't see from where you are seated in the, in the jury box is that he has leg irons on. Oh, and, wow. oh. and, um, I think he said, I think he said something about, he's got something on his leg, basically that he couldn't go. And he said, and you may have noticed the sheriff's deputies standing behind him. And you probably, you know, you, you probably just figured that they were there as normal or court security or whatever he said, but there, they are there. They lead him from the jail to the courthouse. And then, you know, when you guys leave, they put him back in handcuffs and take him back to the, back to the jailhouse. He said, but you know, he arrives here in his jail attire. They bring a, they bring an outfit for him that he changes into. They remove the handcuffs, they, but they leave the shackles on, they get him seated and then they bring you in. And that's why that first day when the, when the bailiff was who was leading so long, like he poked his head in and closed the door real quick. He's like, Oh no, they're not ready. It's because they were still getting him seated and he was in his shackles and they didn't want us to see any of that. So, and it was cool too, that the bailiff, like he made us stand away from the door anytime that he was opening it to check out if they were ready for it. See anything you weren't supposed to see. Yeah. In case there was something going on that we weren't supposed to see. So that was pretty cool. Um, And then he had us, you know, there was a piece of paper that we were all able to fill out if we wanted to um, fill out that, uh, they would send us a questionnaire with basically just a, a bunch of different questions that the judge is just seeking personal feedback on stuff. And he seemed like a pretty decent guy. Um, yeah, I, I was very impressed with the way he ran things. The one thing that bothered me the most though, was that there's no set schedule. There's no set schedule and they don't tell you what is going on. And then the thing that bothered me the very most was that at the conclusion of the case, after closing arguments are made, they give us our instructions. They lead us back into the jury deliberation room. They 
instantly tell us that we needed to surrender our phones and any other electronic devices that could be used to communicate or access anything outside. Like, here's my pacemaker. And they didn't tell us that ahead of time. And then they didn't tell us when we would be getting them back. Didn't give us the opportunity to even communicate with anybody to say, hey, the case has ended. We're going to be in deliberations now. So for that whole time that we were doing our deliberations, none of us could contact any of our family members to let them know what was going on or when we anticipated being home or if we anticipated being home. So there's, you know, people who have daycare that they need to know that weren't able to. And, you know, I wasn't able to let Tracy know that I was going to be home for dinner or wouldn't be home for dinner or that the case had ended or anything. And it wasn't until we had turned everything in and they delivered it. And then we'd gone back in that they even gave us on any of our shit back. And that bothered me. Like, there should be, and it's it's one of the things that I plan to put on my feedback for all of this is that there should be some way that we are able to let people know what's going on, like like not just to know like, like alive, like the yeah. court didn't. End and I got in a fiery car accident on my yeah. way. Home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know? agree so, with that. Yeah, um, but yeah, so he was convicted on all five counts, but with us finding that the mitigating factors came into play. It was reduced from uh, murder as a first degree felony to uh, manslaughter, uh, second degree felony. And uh, we also found out through our questioning of the judge that the sentencing guidelines for second degree felony manslaughter are from one to 15 years, but that based on the other counts that he was also convicted of in addition, in addition to the firearms charge for a convicted felon, like he said, the, the firearms charge will carry some pretty stiff penalties. He said, so he's going to be in prison for a while, especially if he's Uh, already been a federal federally charged. And that's been, well, that he's, that he's got, I don't don't know if it was a state felony or federal, but yeah, that he's a convicted felon either way. And yeah, he is not supposed to be in possession of a firearm. Yeah. Yeah. He'll be going away for a long time. Like it's just, but I mean, in in the end, it basically just boils down to, you know, toxic masculinity and stupidity and gets you in trouble. I forgot to mention too, that we also found out from the medical examiner that at lunchtime on a weekday, Darnell's blood alcohol content throughout all of this was 0.13. Whoa. So he's high on cocaine and fucking drunk driving his family around, harassing this guy out going out of his way to be a gigantic asshole and ended up paying the price for it. Wow. So yeah, just tragic all around, but yeah. And, and it, and throughout all of this too, it really, it, it cemented my position that not only is the death penalty bad because it's backward and barbaric and stupid, like let's let's murder people to tell them that to show them that murder is bad. Yeah. Like it's you know aside from being stupid and barbaric and backward, it's also really bad when a jury is presented with a case where if they That's were to impossible. convict a person, they could be putting this person to they could be responsible for this person's death. Yeah. And 
that had had we not known what the ultimate sentence could be, but knowing that there's this potential death sentence lurking in the background, that could lead a lot of people to not to specifically want to work in opposition of convicting somebody who had oh, yeah. committed a crime because they wouldn't want the weight of that on their, on their head. Yeah. And so you end up with specific instances where somebody who did commit a heinous crime may go unpunished, unconvicted of that crime because people did not want to have that weight on, on their, their conscience. conscience. Yeah. And so that person ends up walking freer with a reduced sentence. And that's, that's a terrible thing to, in its own right, that uh, there's no fucking good argument for the death penalty. I would love to hear somebody present me with a good argument for the death penalty because I've not ever heard one. The only thing I've ever heard in defense of the death penalty is that, well, some people just need to die. Some people Which isn't, have fucked up so bad that they just need to go away forever. And if you're pro-life, that's the exact wrong argument to have. Uh-huh. And But I, I hear it a lot from a lot of my liberal lefty friends, too, that, oh, no, this person is just so bad, they needed to die. No, I think... For reasons. I can say locked up for the rest of your life with no chance of getting out, but... Yeah. And I think it speaks a lot to, to how different uh, societies run their justice system. Is it a justice system, or is it... Punitive. Yeah. yeah, and and the United States' is, is definitely punitive. Yeah. It's it, it's a penalty. You're being punished for something bad you did. It's not rehabilitative. We're not working to try to make you a better person through this whole process. We're going to punish you for being a bad person. And we don't really ultimately care how you end up at the end of this as long as we feel that you've been punished enough for it. Yeah. And we don't give a fuck what happens to you afterwards. Yeah. We're, in fact... In putting you into prison, we're probably going to make you an even worse person that we're going to have to put on the streets, and then you'll be right back here again. Recidivism Welcome. is a huge yeah. issue. Welcome to your new career. <laughs> have fun with it. Oh, yeah. Uh, but this episode is epically long. Uh, I hope you all have appreciated it. You've learned something. Uh, you found it interesting. I thought it was interesting as hell. Um, I learned a lot. If you have any questions about it, let me know. I would love to answer any of them. It was really rough not being able to talk, talk about, about it, it. All, like for those few days. Uh, it was, I know, it, I know it drove Tracy crazy, you know, she, and thankfully, like she didn't ask me any questions, but it was, it was one of those things that, you know, I'm, I'm there all day and I come home and I'm just, I'm thinking about it a lot and I'm, I'm weighing some unwind. of the, I'm contemplating it, but I've still got my other life shit going on. And, you know, so for her, it's just, I'm gone all day. And then I show up and I'm kind of quiet all night and then I can't talk to her about it. And then I fuck off the next day and I'm gone again. And yeah, so she didn't know what was going on and. It's just, it had to have been frustrating for her. It was frustrating for me. I would have liked to have been able to talk to somebody about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but now that I can, yeah, if you, any, if anybody has any questions about any of it, I would be happy to answer them. Uh, I'm an open book about all of that kind of stuff. I just, I thought it was very interesting and it restored some of my, I don't know that I'd call it faith, but it, it restored some sense 
of a semblance of justice uh, being meted out in this instance. And that it wasn't, you know, oh, obviously bad person did obviously bad thing and will obviously pay these high penalties for doing so. Uh, That it was very much slated to not provide any kind of prejudicial view of this person's prior history. This was all about this particular instance and what they did and could they have done something different? And I just, I, I was really impressed by that whole process, but we'll end there. I appreciate you all listening. I appreciate you joining me, Ryan, for this long. Oh yeah. All I know is right now my bladder is about to burst. (laughs) Well then let's get you out of here before we go though. I want to make sure that we thank our Patreon supporters because they keep the show going. That would be Ed Harris. Kevin Scheel. Crucify the like button, leave a review on iTunes, and rate the show five times a day towards Celia Gray. Steve Kuno. Sinead Duffy. Tiffany Hudson. John McCullough. A noble spirit and big and the smallest man. A perfectly cromulent statement. Ollie Olson. Vanessa. Alan Firth. Two skeptical chaps. Stephen Andrus. Martina Fern. Clank Trucking. Zeus 9SO. Jonathan. Not a fucking gymnast. Up Doug Willoughby. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Marvin Dracone. Sir Roses of the River. Get a scale and find out what a hen weighs. <laughs> Megan Mitchell. Corey Ebert. Don't be a Richard. Mackenzie Peterson. All hail Peanut Buttra. Jeremy Goodson. Utah Outcasts. Good news, everyone. Wesley Aaron. Freethinker215. Socialized Healthcare Saved My Life. Sarah Segovia. Theodore Sullen. Tim Jacobson. Janet Uter. Savita Kuna. Purple Dragon. James. And Snake Jailbird wants you to please support the American Civil Liberties Union. Get off my lawn, you coppers. (laughs) You did it. (laughs) Thank you all very much. We really appreciate it. If you, dear listener, would like to become a Patreon patron, you can do so very easily by going to patreon.com slash godlessrevolution, where you can contribute as little as $1 per episode. And then you get all kinds of fun stuff. Extra episodes every now and then, clips from the cutting room floor, a song at the end of the episode, the episode released before anybody else, uh, extended outtakes, fun stuff like that there. And the knowledge that you are helping us keep this little venture going. And we appreciate you very much for doing so. With that, I'm going to let Ryan go because he's got to pee. I need to do the same and then I'm going to have some dinner. Oh, yeah. I got some definite pressure in my abdomen pushing up on my, my, uh, my bladder right now. Well, thanks, man. Love you. Uh, Bye. All right. I think I told you about my buddy from Boston who was a who was a cop, a cop? in Ogden, yep. but he also worked at Hill, um, and he worked in combat camera at Hill. So uh, he gave yeah. me a bunch of DVDs of like uh, air was it air superiority displays or some shit like that. Like, so he would go out and work with crews and and film 
when they would do like demos of bombing raids and shit like that. Yeah. Like probably out at like the Uter where they're, I know they have a tower Mm -hmm. at the Uter where the planes literally fly right over top of that tower and drop shit. Yeah. He said that he would, he'd go out to, to UTTR and there was somewhere in Vegas, like somewhere near Vegas that they would do a bunch of testing. Okay. And he's like, Ah, oh, fuck yeah, you sit in the fucking stands, man, and you see these planes come in fucking low and they just drop shit and it just fucking like everybody in the stands, their clothing blows back and their hair blows back. It's fucking amazing, man. <laughs> oh, just the accent would be amazing. Kind of story. <laughs> then they get those fucking warthogs out there, man, and they're just blowing shit up. And it's just... <laughs> Getting messaging out and working on the website and probably working on programs for them to help help people know about the wildlife in the forest. She'll get to meet Smokey the Bear. Well, I I mean, if she she can come to work, she can meet Smokey the Bear on fucking Wednesday at work. I ain't getting in that thing, though. What? I'm, I'm lost now. Are you, Is Smokey the Bear coming to talk to you at work? Well, we have a Smokey the Bear. Well, because for our pancake breakfast, when the... When the, uh, like young kids show up from school before school, they bring them over there for a pancake breakfast. Uh-huh. Like all the, the elementary school kids, we usually put someone out there and Smokey the bear and the other guy and the, uh, the dog one. I can't remember what the dog's name is. We got both of those costumes at work. Uh. So they, someone has to get in it while the kids are there. I see. I've worn Smokey the Bear once, and like I've probably told you in a past story, I punched a kid in the head. <laughs> what? No. I never told you that? No, I don't think you've oh, told I me about so punching fucking, a kid in the head. <laughs> I knocked that kid straight on his fucking ass, and I felt so bad about it. Because you can't, like your vision is right here. Uh-huh. Like you have horse blinders on. You can't see much. <laughs> and it And it was kids coming from different like elementary schools to see like what the military does and stuff like come in and see all this stuff. And we were come there in and have and, some guy in a costume, knock you on your ass. Yeah. And I was <laughs> in the Smokey the bear costume and I see a kid running at me like, Oh, Smokey the bear, like wanted to give Smokey the bear a hug. Mm-hmm. So I was down on like one knee and I opened my arms up so I could, the kid could come in and hug Smokey the bear. I didn't realize another kid was on my right hand side coming in to do the exact same thing. And I, <laughs> fucking backhanded him <laughs> right across the fucking head. <laughs> like, I just felt the pressure hit my hand. I'm like, oh, I, I just, oh. You just laid somebody out. <laughs> and the kid just got up and hugged Smokey the Bear, but I'm like, I'm not allowed to talk. I just fucking, like, did anybody see that? I just knocked that kid the fuck out. <laughs> oh, I felt so bad about it, though. Well, that's hilarious. 